Jonas Pizzito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Pizzito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thanks for joining me this Tuesday, January 23rd. It is the day of the non-Hampshire primary because it is a non-event. Donald Trump is going to win. The only question is, will Nikki Haley get enough votes not to be completely humiliated and be forced to drop out after today? She's got a lot of money behind her. Former Illinois resident Ken Griffin uh, announced a while back, you know, he was an early supporter of DeSantis. And then he decided to put his contributions on hold when DeSantis started imploding and uh, then made noises like, oh, you know, I might just support Nikki Haley in this race. And, of course, uh, the pack that was put together by the Koch family made a big announcement a while back that Nikki Haley was their candidate. So God only knows how much money they're fueling her campaign with at this point, which is the only reason. I mean, if she's absolutely humiliated in New Hampshire, then she will probably drop out regardless. But if if she has what she considers, uh, big if, what she considers to be a strong showing, and she has tons of money behind her, then she'll probably stick it out at least for another month till uh, South Carolina has its Republican primary. South Carolina is her home state, but everyone expects her uh, to get trounced there. And while you and I might look at it as just another primary in political circles, if you the feeling is sort of like if you can't win your home state, what are you doing in the race? If the people who've known you longest and know you best won't vote for you, what are you doing in the race? (laughs) So um, after today, Nikki Haley may be asking herself, what am I doing in the race? We'll see. And, you know, as long as she's burning through other people's money, why should she quit? You never know. I mean, Donald Trump could still keel over at some point, right? Hope springs eternal. So the non-Hampshire primary is um, going on right now. All of the cable news networks are acting like it is the presidential election, blowing out wall-to-wall coverage, panels, discussions, reporters and anchors on the scene. (sighs) You know, I am not a fan of Chuck Todd in any way, shape or form. Uh, when he left Meet the Press, I was I was thrilled. I uh, I thought that that was a fine move to get him out of that chair. I thought he sucked. But um, he was doing an interview with uh, Chris Jansing over on MSNBC this morning. And uh, he said that he had talked to. Governor Sununu and Governor Sununu's brother, who's also a Sununu, who was a senator or is a senator. I don't follow New Hampshire. Um, and that they were both telling him that there was going to be a really huge turnout. 
that everybody was going to be shocked by the turnout. It was going to be overwhelming. And Chuck Todd said, you know, I've been here. I've been on the ground. I've been to campaign events. And he said, I have to tell you, if indeed he is correct and there's a huge turnout, I'll be really surprised because I don't sense any real excitement in any of the events I've been to. You know, no sense of, you know, especially he said, you know, I went to a Nikki Haley thing and there was no excitement like she's got momentum and she's going to, you know, do this and it's going to be great and it's going to be awesome. And our candidate's going to upset the mainstream candidate. He said none of that. I mean, you know, God knows he could be wrong and God knows Chuck Todd is wrong a lot. But he said he didn't find any sense of excitement that would lead to the kind of wildly uh, high turnout that the Sununu brothers seem to think is going to happen. Even though the Democrats decided that uh, New Hampshire was not going to be their one of their early primary states, there is a move, I think, just to counter all the attention the Republicans are getting. Uh, there's a move to get uh, Democrats to show up to write in Joe Biden. Um, I don't know if that is going to accomplish anything. But I think people want to take a little bit of the thunder away from from what is going on. I don't think Democrats realize that by pulling out of Iowa and pulling out of New Hampshire, which make a lot of sense because those primaries, while they are crucial um, to catapult a candidate on they are those states are not representative of the country those states tend to be conservative they tend to be wildly white they don't represent the united states and that was what the democrats argued but with the republicans staying into those early states it means that they have gotten tons of media attention like i said even though iowa was a joke more so than new hampshire um i mean forget about Fox, but CNN and MSNBC, my God, they covered it like it was the arrival of aliens, you know, wall to wall. And they're doing the same thing for New Hampshire. And I think the Democrats are going, oh, you know what? We missed out on a real sort of PR opportunity here. One of the people in New Hampshire for Joe Biden has been Congressman Ro Khanna. Uh, oddly enough, even though there is no Democratic primary uh, today for the Democrats, uh, he's been campaigning for Joe Biden and uh, helping to spread the word that people should cast write in ballots for Joe Biden today. Um, Jen Psaki, MSNBC host, former White House communications director under Biden, uh, has been did her Sunday show live from New Hampshire. And uh, talked to Ro Khanna about his campaigning in New Hampshire and and trying to get write-in votes for Biden. A very interesting conversation. Here is a portion of it. Listen to this. I think the president is has found his voice. He's strong in a speech in Valley Forge. He wants to draw the contrast. He wants to say that, look, he stood up for the middle class, working class. Donald Trump had four years, large tax cuts to very wealthy people. He's bringing manufacturing back. Donald Trump didn't do anything in terms of new factories. And most importantly, 
President Biden loves democracy. He loves the town halls. He loves the democratic spirit. Donald Trump doesn't represent that. He's ready to draw the contrast. And people like they have his whole career are underestimating him. And come here. Look at the enthusiasm for the president here organically. He's not even on the ballot. And house party after house party packed. Not because of me. Because they want to vote for him. He also loves people. He's an extrovert. It's quite exhausting. I think it's fair to admit. One of the challenges they've had that they've articulated is that people still don't think Donald Trump will be the nominee. A surprising number of people. Do you expect once that is clear, if that is clear, we still have more to go here, that more people will see a shift in the polls for the president? I do. I think, look, people have been almost rooting in some sense of the media for uh, Chris Christie or Nikki Haley. For some of us who are in the House, it's been apparent that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee because all the Republican House members, many of them are supporting him. And I think as that becomes clearer, there's going to be more scrutiny not on all of Donald Trump's legal troubles, but on his policies. I mean, he ran saying forgotten Americans, hollowed out manufacturing, and he didn't do anything. And this president actually has delivered. I mean, one of the stories that this president is going to get to tell is he's had a manufacturing revolution in this country, new industries, new factories, all the things that Donald Trump was talking about this president's delivering. I can't wait till he gets to tell that story. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if Biden gets any right right in votes in this Republican primary election taking place today in New Hampshire. I think I was watching CNN this morning. I I was flipping back and forth between CNN and MSNBC. um, And they had a reporter who was talking to a woman who had just left uh, the voting booth in New Hampshire. And uh, she said that she was supporting Nikki Haley. And the reporter was asking follow-up questions to try to find out what it was about Nikki Haley that she really liked. And she finally looked at the guy and she said, well, honestly, I was a Chris Christie voter. Uh, I lived in New Jersey when he was governor, and I thought he was a great governor. So I really liked Chris Christie. <laughs> I don't think that was quite what the reporter was expecting her to say. But you know what? Um, Supposedly, remember um, when Chris Christie was caught on a hot mic in Iowa and the mic was cut off just as. Oh, no, no, not in Iowa. This was right before Chris Christie came out before a group of people to announce the end of his presidential campaign. It was right before he uh, spoke about ending his campaign. He was backstage. I forget who he was talking to. I'm not sure they were identified. And his mic was hot. And he was talking about how Nikki Haley was just going to get the she was going to get wiped, just wiped uh, by Trump. And that he started to say to somebody that he got a call from Ron DeSantis, who was terrified that he was. And then the mic shut off. I think Ron DeSantis was terrified that Chris Christie would come out and throw his support behind Nikki Haley because, you know, Ron DeSantis just barely edged Nikki Haley in Iowa. And the belief is that a lot of the people who were drawn to Chris Christie, clearly, if you were going to vote for Chris Christie, you are not a Donald Trump supporter. And the feeling was that even if half of Chris Christie's voters went for Haley, that they would grind DeSantis into dust. Well, I guess we will see what happens in New Hampshire, as there's at least one Chris Christie voter interviewed by a reporter today who said she was there to vote for Nikki Haley. 
it's interesting when he pressed her on why she didn't really say because she didn't want Donald Trump. She talked in more positive terms about kind of what she liked about Christie and that Nikki Haley was like the closest thing. Interesting, huh? Um, Andy uh, says he found that clip we had of Chris Christie on his hot mic and exactly what he said. So let's listen to that. People don't want to hear it, Wayne. They don't want to hear it. We know we're right, but they don't want to hear it. Right. And, and there's, you know, we couldn't have been any clearer. Right. We couldn't have been any more, any more direct or worked any harder. So, you know. Yeah. Oh, when you give land to China and places like that. Yeah, that's what you get. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, she spent 68 million so far, just on TV. Spent 68 million so far, 59 million by DeSantis, and we spent 12. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment, you know? And she's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. She hasn't even She's still 20 points behind Trump in the Hampshire, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's, gonna, he's still going to carry out, right? Yes. Always. I, t- you know, I talked to DeSantis called me. Petrified that I would. Petrified that I would. And the mic shut off. This was that was Chris Christie right before he went out on stage to say that he was ending his presidential campaign. And uh, I guess maybe Chris Christie should have endorsed Nikki Alien, put DeSantis out of his misery a few days earlier. But uh, that has happened regardless. As you know, Ron DeSantis has ended his presidential campaign. Many are speculating that Ron DeSantis has ended his political career because he proved he's term limited out to be governor of Florida. I, I, you know, I suppose he could try to run for Senate from Florida. Um, or maybe he, you know, he's a young guy. He's only in his mid forties. Maybe he'll lick his wounds and try to reinvent himself and run for president again. Anything is possible, but he proved to be just a disaster on the national stage. The man has no charisma. Uh, he's a very awkward campaigner. He honestly doesn't really seem to like people. And frankly, right before he hit the national stage, some of his closest advisors were they were they were kind of, you know, how you try in politics, you try to make a weakness a strength. Well, they were talking about, you know, Ron DeSantis's independence and he doesn't, you know, use people as a sounding board and he doesn't call people up. He doesn't even call back donors when they call and want to talk to him. That's how independent he is. He even blows off his donors. And I'm thinking when I first heard that quote, I thought to myself, really, really, those are the people Ron DeSantis. Hmm. And a lot of local Florida reporters, they kept warning the rest of the country whenever anybody was talking to them that, um, They predicted that DeSantis would implode once he hit the national stage because they said, you don't understand this guy. This guy doesn't have any campaigning skills and doesn't enjoy it. As a matter of fact, he hates it. And they were proven right. (sighs) Vice President Kamala Harris was in Wisconsin yesterday 
made a big speech about abortion rights, an issue that Donald Trump is handing, <clears throat> handing to the Democrats. Donald Trump, you know, for a while he, he, he was kind of wishy-washy. And then he came out and did an interview and said, you know, I'm the reason Roe v. Wade fell. That was me. I'm the reason that you have all these abortion bans. That's me. Clearly, he decided that was the message that his voters wanted to hear. And by God, he was going to give it to them. And, and Nikki Haley, who, you know, OK, um, Anna Navarro, who's on The View, described Nikki Haley, said she was like one of those inflatable men you see outside of car dealerships. You know, they flop this way and they flop that way. And they got the little uh, spiky plastic hair coming off the top of their tubular bodies. They flop this way. They flop that way. He's, she said that's what Nikki Haley is like. And she's right. Because there was um, a time a while ago where Nikki Haley was saying that a complete abortion ban, that abortion like needed to be a nuanced issue, that it, there there shouldn't be just an outright complete ban, um, that there should be some exceptions. Um, and uh, recently, what did she say? Why, if she's elected president, she is going to make sure there is a federal abortion ban. The Republicans have now fully embraced an anti-woman platform. I don't understand Nikki Haley taking this position, but she is somebody who studies the math. I mean, she's like the money ball candidate. Oh, wait, you know, um, the surveys, the statistics say I should be X. Well, I'll be X. Yeah, it doesn't matter if I was Y last week. I'll be X this week because X is what they want and X is how I win. She clearly has done the research and found that a nuanced approach to abortion was not going to work. It was not going to get her where she needed to go. And she is now publicly embracing that if she is president, she will work for a federal ban on abortion. That would mean even states like Illinois, federal laws supersede state laws. So she's no better than the worst of them. And how you want to disenfranchise 50, 51% of the population and think that that's a winning strategy? I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of uh, misogynists that follow Donald Trump. And I, Sarah Longwell, who's with the Bulwark, she does these focus groups. And uh, she got together a bunch of Republicans to talk about Trump versus Nikki Haley. And it would turn your stomach, the number of them who said that a woman uh, really shouldn't be president. You know, women, that whole thing, women are so emotional. Do you remember when Brett Kavanaugh burst into tears when he was being questioned about being on the Supreme Court and he started to cry like a baby? But women are too emotional. And one woman even said, well, you know, well, like maybe, you know, basically saying like, her judgment would be off when she was having her period. You know, she'd be especially emotional then. We can't have that. It was just sickening. Just 
sickening. So anyway, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden have decided to embrace this abortion issue and remind voters that they are the ones who support a woman's right to choose. They support a woman's right to not have the government in the doctor's office. I know. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to share with you um, a little bit about Kamala Harris's speech in Milwaukee. Listen to this. Just look at what happened here in this beautiful state of Wisconsin. After Roe was dismantled, extremists evoked a law from 1849 to stop abortion in this state. 1849. Before women could vote. Before women could hold elected office. Before many women could even own property. In a state whose motto is forward. (laughs) These extremists are trying to take us backward. Well, we're not having that. We're not having that. And just look at what the fallout has been. The reproductive care clinics across the state that had to close. The women that hospitals had to turn away. Women like Megan. So Megan learned she was pregnant early last year. A few months later, she and her husband, John, went to their doctor for a routine ultrasound. And it revealed devastating news for them. The fetus had a severe genetic disorder. And Megan's pregnancy threatened her life. But because of that 1849 law, Megan's doctor could not provide a life-saving abortion unless he found two other physicians to sign off. He called doctor after doctor here in Wisconsin, but none were willing to risk going to prison. Ultimately, Megan had to go to Minnesota to receive care. She had to leave the state where she calls home to save her life. Thankfully, late last year, a judge declared that this 1849 law did not apply to abortion, and some clinics in Wisconsin have since reopened. But that does not undo. That does not undo or heal the incredible pain that women like Megan have endured. No, it does not. And you know, when Roe v. Wade first fell, people were predicting that we would start to hear these horror stories and that once we started hearing these horror stories about what women were going through, that people's sentiments would change. Well, we've been hearing the horror stories. That story about Megan... That story has happened in other states. There was a woman in Texas, remember, who had the same problem. A baby she very much wanted was um, suffering from a defect. And uh, the state of Texas said she had to uh, had to carry that fetus, even though everyone knew that within minutes of birth, the baby would die a painful death because it could not sustain itself. 
And she went to court. She thought because there's supposed to be some exceptions. And she thought, you know, if anybody's an exception, it would be me. And the Texas court said, no, no, you're not an exception to this rule. Um, But by the time the whole situation played out in the courts, she had already gone to another state. If uh, Nikki Haley becomes, by some chance, the Republican nominee, that kind of going to another state is no longer going to be possible. You know, the rest of the world who followed us when it comes to a lot of these social issues like um, a woman's right to autonomy and, you know, gay marriage, a lot of the countries around the world followed us. They didn't lead the way. But they now all have these things as part of the way they do business, and they are looking at us, and and they are wondering what is going on in the United States. We are not going to go back to the 50s. We are not going to be the suppressed women that lived in that generation. We are not going to be a white Christian nationalist state. This is the last gasp of a group that sees their hold on power evaporating, and they are terrified. It's going to happen no matter what they do, and it can't happen soon enough. We are going to take a break. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court when we come back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I have said repeatedly that I I think it's possible, and I certainly hope it happens, that in the 2024 election, because Republicans have become so extreme and more and more people are being turned off by their positions and the things that they're doing, I think it's possible that the Democrats will have a majority in the Senate, a majority in the House, and still have a Democrat in the White House. And if that happens, if there are sufficient votes to be able to get things done, I think we will see um, a Democrat, whether it's Joe Biden's second term or if it's another Democrat in office, I think we are going to see amazing things, just amazing things, not the least of which is reform for the Supreme Court, which very few people... seem to have a lot of faith in anymore. You know, it used to be, you know, everybody looked to the Supreme Court as the one place where they could get justice and fairness, truth, justice in the American way, as they used to say on the Superman show. Um, but that those days have, have long passed. We have a court that is at the very best, a partisan court, at the very worst, a corrupt money-grubbing court that not a lot of people have faith in. And um, I think based on what they did with Roe v. Wade and a few other things, I think there is going to be real momentum for changing the Supreme Court if the Democrats have the votes to do it. In uh, the current issue of Washington Monthly, Rob Wolf wrote how to fix the Supreme Court. Well, what what better person to talk to about this? We are joined now by Rob Wolf, whose um, article uh, you can if you get the um, physical Washington Monthly, it is on page twenty eight. If you do it digitally, it posted January sixteenth. 
Rob, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me and for telling folks where to uh, find the piece. I must well, say it a, is. Um, please, go a, ahead. It's a great piece, and it's um, it's very well-researched. Um, anyway, I just wanted to compliment you on uh, this wonderful reporting you did here. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So take our listeners... Um, well, we probably should back up a little bit. And, and, you know, I said that, you know, we used to um, believe that the Supreme Court was going to be the final arbiter of truth, justice and the American way. But one of the one of the quotes early um, in your article, um, you know, you talked about how the justices went through this uh, phony code of conduct that they've adopted and how it is. Less than ideal. Let's talk about that. Let's start there. Um, Rob, they've already adopted a code of ethics, so obviously we don't need to change anymore. That would be their argument. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's a really interesting episode that we've just seen with the Supreme Court adopting the first code of ethics for its own justices in its entire more than 200-year history. Uh, and it's something they long insisted they would never do, and they did it because of popular pressure, which usually they like to sort of sneer at. Um, so, so to anybody who cares about you know, the actual jurisprudence of the Supreme Court and the way that you know, conservative priorities are, are being shoehorned into seemingly every decision, this should actually be um, um, a, a hint, a, a, a piece of hope that... Um, you know, this all this this outrage, as you said, creates real momentum for change, even when it comes in this form, which, as you alluded to, is not exactly um, the most reassuring sort of code of conduct. It's it's actually watered down and in subtle ways that that can allow justices to uh, get away with not uh, disclosing things uh, that perhaps they ought to disclose, and also it has no enforcement mechanism. So there's no real way to make them follow it. That's a kind um, of code of conduct that I think I would like to apply to my life, one that is unenforceable <laughs> and really doesn't really have, doesn't really even do what it says it does. Yeah. Well, but as you said, um, you know, the, 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 the court's decisions, especially the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, has created a lot of popular outrage. It's created real momentum that this fall expressed itself in, in a self-imposed change by the justices. And at the same time, uh, as I describe in the piece, there has been this parallel discussion, mostly in legal academia, about what kinds of concrete reforms could actually um, make the court work better, could insulate it from partisan pressure, perhaps, or could actually even um, just re reduce some of the all-powerful um, capabilities of the court that are so that can't really be checked by the other uh, branches of government and mean that we are just sort of um, at the mercy uh, of whoever happens to be sitting on and forming the majority on the bench. And so I argue that those those two those two streams need to be connected. The people who um, have heard about Dobbs, who are angry about Roe, uh, need to know about these ideas that are out there so that they can start to talk about them themselves and a popular movement can form that is not just upset about the individual uh, decisions of the court, but is actually looking at the root problem, which is 
a court that has acquired quite a lot of power and is using it in an overtly power partisan way. And that movement needs to, you know, have in its pocket these these concrete tools for reform. And in our past, um, you know, we have what we consider a very, very, very partisan court and we expect partisan decisions. And that is something that, while it certainly hasn't been the usual for the Supreme Court, it is something that has happened before in our past. We've had other courts that were partisan, have we not? That's right. Yeah, my piece builds off um, a really important piece that we published um, about a year ago by our legal affairs editor, Garrett Epps, uh, that compares this moment uh, to two other times in the Supreme Court's history, the um, Dred Scott Court, um, which uh, was a pretty uh, partisan court before the Civil War that routinely sided with uh, Southern slaveholders and arguably, uh, you know, sped the the oncoming civil war. And also the uh, Hughes Court of the early 20th century, which kept standing in the way of popular reforms, especially those championed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, that were meant to, um, you know, give the average person a fighting chance in a gilded age economy, and at the point at the time of the depression, to actually, um, you know, pull us out of that. And so, both those times, there was really a, a fundamental conflict between these nine folks in robes and the American people. And the vast majority of the people wanted the country to go in one way, and these unelected folks in robes decided that it was going to go another way, and the result was just really um, dangerous instability, and we run the risk of that happening again. Yeah. Uh, I like that phrase, folks in robes. I think instead of SCOTUS, for, if in the future I'm going to call them fur, folks in robes. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, that's, I think that's a good description of the court we have now. Okay, let's talk about some uh, well let's, let's see if we can if, if we can get them all in let's talk about as many of your ideas as possible for what are we going to do give us give us number 1 number 2 number 3 what are we going to do to make the supreme court better <laughs> there's a lot and i should clarify these are the ideas of, of you know constitutional law scholars of which i am not one uh, but i've done my best to sum up the, the major ones that are out there um one of the biggest ideas is, uh, well, there's, there's sort of two of them um, put out by a pair of law scholars named Dan Epps and Ganesh Siddharaman who want to kind of insulate the court from partisan pressure. And so they have two major ideas. The first one, which you might have heard in the 2020 campaign, Pete Buttigieg uh, was repeating it on the campaign trail, called the Supreme Court Lottery. It's a pretty uh, wide-ranging change. You would essentially appoint all of the 170-plus uh, federal district court judges to the Supreme Court. You would expand it by that many members. But you would also turn the Supreme Court into a rotating panel of nine. Uh, that's the lottery part. And then, um, so that's meant to prevent, um, you know, judge shopping. It's meant to prevent the brinksmanship of judicial nominations, where when a new Supreme Court seat is up, um, all hell breaks loose as people try to leverage their ideologically favored candidate on. And then there are a few more rules that would kind of insulate it from partisan pressure, like you need a supermajority to overturn federal laws, and also no more than five judges on each panel, on each rotating panel, because they would rotate every two weeks. 
No more than five of those members could be appointed by a president of the same party. The whole point is to make the, the court as balanced and nonpartisan as you can. Would you would that require a change in our constitution, or could that be done by the um, by uh, Congress? It's a good question. As far as I understand it, um, most of it is probably doable um, via Congress via federal statute. Obviously, those are sweeping laws that you probably can't pass without um, you know getting through the filibuster. You can't just tack on. Well, I don't know. I, I'm not an expert in congressional procedure, but I don't think you can just tack that onto the budget. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, there, there is a question in um, this and another thing that will come up, which is term limits for Supreme Court justices, of the question of uh, can you effectively take justices off the court or rotate them on and off the court because of what the Constitution says about judges serving during good behavior, which is taken to mean for life. There are various workarounds around that, but these are, you know, these are sweeping changes and um, the constitutionality is is absolutely a matter of debate. Well, Um, when I put on my old media trainer hat, I can say that uh, I think Pete Buttigieg should have called it Supreme Court rotation because I think anything that smacks of lottery sounds like a little bit... We all know lotteries. We have state lotteries. We have national, um, you know, we, we buy tickets for things. It sounds a little uh, unreliable. Um, I think that that would be something that would be easier to tack. I think we should start calling it Supreme Court rotation. That sounds like something people understand and um, might be able to buy on about. Um, again, I think these are all great ideas, but we do have justices up there that were appointed for life. So what do we do with those folks? Do we get rid of them somehow? Every person I've talked to about Supreme Court reform has told me that whatever reforms are put in place will not affect the current sitting justices, that there's basically nothing anybody can do to term limit them to force them to do anything they don't want to do, that we pretty much just have to wait till they either resign or die um, before we can really see uh, a new kind of court. As far as you know, is that what you've been told? Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, but yeah, this is sort of naturally heading in the in the direction of term limits, which is one of the you know major things that reformers talk about. Um, because the Constitution says that they shall serve during group good behavior, makes it hard to say, oh, like, if we don't like the current justices, we we can somehow get them out of the way. And that necessi- isn't necessarily the answer. But, um, you know, uh, some of the, the ideas for term limits, which, by the way, every other major democracy's constitutional court has, either that or a mandatory retirement age. But some of the ideas around that include, you know, you could give judges senior status, which uh, other federal judges do receive, and which means that they don't regularly hear cases, but they're mm-hmm. available for backups. Like emeritus? Recusal on the court. Sorry? Like an emeritus. Right. Um, so you're not technically taking them off the court. You're just, uh, they're not regularly hearing cases. Um, I mean, those are those are all ideas. Um, there are also ideas that really don't have to do with necessarily changing the composition of the court, but actually just changing the role of the Supreme Court. What is the Supreme Court for? Um, and we 
haven't always thought of that in the same way throughout all our history. Um, you know, there was a time, it was only a few years of the United States, but there was a time when the Supreme Court wasn't looking over uh, federal laws to decide if they were constitutional or not. That's a power that the court grabbed for itself in 1803 with Marbury versus Madison. And all throughout our history, folks uh, concerned about seeming overreach of these kind of judicial review decisions by the court have, con- have proposed things called something called jurisdiction stripping, um, where you, uh, where Congress um, limits what kinds of cases the court can hear. You know, an obvious area where this could apply in the modern day is Congress passing a law that says we take away the court's jurisdiction over, you know, environmental regulation, something that it's very likely and in fact has interfered with regularly. That actually is completely constitutional. It's explicitly, the power explicitly afforded to Congress in the Constitution is to regulate what's called um, appellate jurisdiction, um, which is, um, yeah. Well, you know, Rob, it's it's interesting that you say that because over the last couple of years, I've read people who say, you know, you know, oh, this is great. You know, you are upset by what the Supreme Court is doing and everybody is talking about ways that it can be regulated or, or altered. But the truth is that Congress isn't using the power it has now. And you, they cite this yeah. exact thing that the Supreme Court has been taking more and more and more power for itself. And Congress has done nothing to oppose it, to stop it, to, to take any of it back. So our, you know, it's right. great to talk about how we can reform in the future, but it doesn't sound like we're even using the tools that are available to us now. Why is that? Oh. Good question. I mean, the the, the deep uh, divisions in our country, the deep partisanship, all the money that goes into elections that determines that that leads to such a closely divided and, and incredibly ideological, um, you know, membership of Congress where you can't do anything without getting through the filibuster. Yeah, it's there are there are a lot of reasons why Congress doesn't work very well, and what it's resulted in is Congress implicitly. Um, kind of giving up its powers to the other branches. You know, some people note that um, they call it the first branch because the first article of the Constitution describes the powers of Congress. And some people, you know, take that to mean Congress should be the most important branch. It's, you know, the directly elected legislators who serve the citizens of the various states. Um, but it, it has given up its powers to other branches. And lately the court has really been encroaching on it, and the Congress has done nothing. Which um, I I don't understand. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I mean, you can't, you can, you know, right now, of course, we have a Republican-led uh, House of Representatives. So, you know, right now, um, it's not a time when, when we can get a lot uh, done. But even when there was a Democratic majority, it just seemed like Congress... I don't know, wasn't paying attention. It wasn't a priority. It, you know, they weren't hearing about it from their constituents back at home. But, you know, um, and they, it feels like that Congress just has basically rolled over. 
Yeah, I exaggerated slightly when I said they they had done nothing. There are, you know, especially in the Senate, there are uh, Democrats in the Senate like Dick Durbin and uh, Sheldon Whitehouse who have led, for instance, these ethics investigations and who have um, various bills that they keep proposing that are actually common sense reforms that could allow Congress to reassert itself as a co-equal branch of government with the court. Sheldon Whitehouse has um, a bill um, um, that is one of the ideas I, I cite in the um, piece that called a Congressional Review Act for Supreme Court decisions that would allow Congress to give Congress a fast track through its own processes, i.e. the filibuster, to quickly respond to Supreme Court decisions, uh, which is especially important in instances where the court is interpreting a federal statute, essentially saying what Congress meant when it wrote a bill. And right now, because Congress is so, uh, frankly, ineffectual, uh, it doesn't really have an easy path to the filibuster to say, no, 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 this is what we meant at the Supreme Court. Those are concrete ideas. They could be taken up um, when a majority is willing to do so and could have a positive effect. What other ideas uh, do you write about of things that we should do to um, reform the Supreme Court? The other major um, um, idea from those two scholars I, I cited near the beginning of the, of the conversation is called the balanced bench. This is another one of these big sweeping reforms that, as you noted, is... is um, would require a lot of uh, momentum to get done. But in this, in this kind of um, idea for the court, you have 10 permanent justices on the court and you actually allow each party, each major party, Democrat and Republican, to select those five permanent justices. And then together, those 10 select another five temporary justices. Um, and those people serve on the court um, for a limited time, and they have to be selected by a supermajority of the 10 permanent justices, or maybe by all of them. You can sort of quibble about how it could be done. The idea is you're, you're sort of imposing balance. You're imposing consensus, um, and it, you're doing that at the level of the basic structure of the court. So in order for the court to function, it needs to be reaching consensus and not just uh, forcing through one party's priorities. Who who supports these ideas? Who are the people who could potentially make this happen? That particular one is one thrown out by that pair of scholars who I call sort of the institutionalists, the ones who want to restore the the legitimacy of the court and to make it look less partisan. And there are various people, there are various politicians out there who agree with those kinds of ideas. Pete Buttigieg is a big uh, proponent of, um, of them. Uh, but really there's not a lot of public conversation and not a lot of conversation by leading politicians about these actual uh, specific policy proposals. They're steering clear of it for now. You know, you'll have um, Democratic senators like White House and Durbin and um, uh, Chuck Schumer talk about what's wrong with the court. 
right now, and they will call it, Chuck Schumer called it the MAGA court. Even uh-huh. Joe Biden said this is, quote, not a normal court. They're not going, they're not gunning straight after the court. So what What I, and I think it's probably for electoral reasons, you know, it's, going at the Supreme Court is going to activate the conservative base like you won't believe. And um, Really? Because they liberals, feel that they've got a court that does their bidding? Yeah, they're quite pleased <laughs> with the court. I mean, they, they might not feel like it's, quote unquote, doing their bidding, even though that may in fact be the case. They may feel that, like, finally, we have reimposed impartial justice according to the original words of the Constitution. Um, and so that, like, and any attempt to mess with that is going to get them activated, it's going to get them going, get them voting. Meanwhile, a lot of liberals are upset over Roe and Dobbs and are, you know, you can motivate them to come to the polls over that. But what I argue is, like, you, the, the, the path to reform isn't necessarily um, by making Democratic leaders embrace it right now, uh, but it is time to start a public conversation about this, where the average person is starting to look at these individual decisions that are upsetting and connecting them to the root problem, not the symptoms, but the cause, which is a court that arguably has too much power and is misusing it, and getting them to learn about and think about the ideas that are out there as part of a larger vision for, you know, what is the Supreme Court for? What's its role, ideally, in our constitutional system? Realistically, what kind of a time frame do you see, especially if this really energizes the conservative base? I mean, Gen, you know, if yeah. we do have an, uh, a full Democratic sweep in 2024, you know, supposedly there's a honeymoon period, you know, the, who's ever in the White House has at least four years. You know, is this something that should be tackled right away to make sure it gets done? Or is this the kind of thing that you and I are going to like watch maybe happen in dribs and drabs over the next 10 years? I think there are individual reforms like the um, the uh, Congressional Review Act that I mentioned um, or possibly, you know, uh, a more binding ethics reform legislation by Congress. Those kinds of things could happen with um, uh, in the short term with electoral majorities, presumably for Democrats, because I don't see Republicans taking this up. in terms of you know sweeping reforms that that um, that change the very structure of the court in order to just totally realign what what its role is in our system, you know, those are those are long term things. I, what I found helpful was thinking about. I went to a, a panel last year at Georgetown Law where a lot of these scholars were talking about this stuff, and one guy brought up that just about forty years earlier. There had been another um, very interesting gathering on a university campus where a bunch of people, sort of stars in their eyes, were thinking about how to totally change the Supreme Court. That was the foundation of the Federalist Society at Yale in 1982. Uh, um, so that's kind of instructive. They achieved their goal. Um, it did take them 40 years 40 years to train up um, scholars (laughs) 
I'm not saying that Well, you know, I hope you live long enough to see it, Rob, because I certainly am not going to be around. But it doesn't that doesn't mean that I don't want my kids to live with a better Supreme Court. Uh, Rob, we're out of time. Thank you for joining us and talking about your article uh, again. Uh, Rob Wolf has written in uh, the on the Digital Washington Monthly site and in the magazine Washington Monthly about how to fix the Supreme Court. It's a great article. Th- Rob, thanks for being here. Thank you. A real pleasure. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. It is one of our regular sponsored Union Strong segments. Today we are talking to Megan Financial again. Tom Borsellino joins us to represent Megan Financial and answer our questions and tell us what Megan is doing this year. Tom, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Hi, Joe. How are you been doing? I'm doing pretty well. So far, 2024 has been, well, let's just say so far it has been intriguing. I, I'm not going to go crazy and say it's been great because there have been, you know, ups and downs, but... Um, certainly it hasn't been the worst year I've ever had so far. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> I, I, day's not over, but I'm optimistic that it's going to get better. Go. Yeah, exactly. You know, speaking of 2024, one of the things that um, I was talking with, uh, with Terry Savage yesterday was uh, personal financial planning and particularly um, planning for tax season and um, other kinds of financial plans that if you aren't already doing it, you might want to implement in 2024. Um, I'd like you to talk about that, too. What are some simple steps we can do to get our financial house in order in 2024? Uh, you know, this is a time of the year uh, that is a great time of the year to begin this process. It, um, too often people begin this planning process too late in the year, you know, in October, November, December, by then it's too late. Um, you know, when you're getting your tax returns together, it's a great opportunity to start looking at things, for example, like insurance. Are you paying too much for insurance? Is there a way that uh, maybe you could shop carriers and see if you could find your homeowner's uh, premium to be a little bit less expensive elsewhere? Are you paying too much? Maybe now, increase some deductibles. I know you guys do a lot of financial counseling and retirement counseling for the unions, do you mm-hmm. do insurance counseling for them? I mean, do you? Um, where would somebody go to evaluate a policy? Like, do I have the right coverage? Who's a person? Would, would you know? These days, a lot of insurance is online. There isn't even an insurance agent anymore. So, how do you find? The, how do you make those decisions, Tom? I agree. Uh, you know, we have uh, advisors at our office that work with life insurance. Uh, we have advisors that work with health insurance. Uh, we're also familiar with uh, property and, and homeowners and automobile. And we, uh, as a firm with Megan Financial, usually refer out those auto and homeowners policies because uh, our uh, niche, so to speak, or our value is really about being the quarterback in terms of evaluating uh, a client's positions and putting together a plan that makes sense. We don't try to wear multiple hats and be a, a jack-of-all-trades. We refer those over to uh, 
insurance professionals who deal solely with automobile and homeowners to answer that question. When, when you say an insurance professional, do you mean like an agent for a particular company? I know, I know that there are financial planners who can tell you like what to do with your IRA and, you know, what, you know, what kind of uh, moves you should make. But I, is there anybody like that when it comes to the insurance industry? Or do you just talk to representatives from various companies to, to find out? I, I like to work with brokers. Uh, because that gives them a field of selection. They're not captive. They're not, uh, not going to offer just one firm. So an insurance agent can offer a variety of companies that can meet uh, various needs uh, to clients based on zip codes that they live in, uh, struggles that they have had in the past with insurance coverages, uh, because they may be accident prone, so to speak. So it gives that agent the ability to shop various companies where they can find the right company uh, for the right client fit. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so I interrupted you. Uh, continue on uh, what else we should do, our simple steps to better be financially um, aware in 2024. You know, um, always pay yourself first, right? That's, uh, in my opinion, so vitally important when it comes to your financial planning. You, you have to pay yourself first, and, and the bills that you have, um, you have to get your arms wrapped around what you're spending your money on. Um, something that's often referred to that I can't reiterate how much time, or excuse me, how much money is wasted is, you know, your Starbucks runs. Uh, your, your, your lunches that you eat out, and I'm not trying to put Starbucks out of business or your coffee runs out of the business or your restaurants out of the business, but um, lunches are very expensive. Uh, you know, dinners are very expensive, and taking five, ten minutes of your time to, to, uh, to sack a lunch and bring it to, with you to the office or to, to your job site, it can save a lot of money over time, which in turn puts that money inside your pocket and develops savings accounts, emergency funds, so that when a surprise occurs that you didn't anticipate um, needing to access money, you're not borrowing from a credit card or a friend or your retirement plan or taking out unnecessary loans. You've developed an emergency fund, which, which is used for those unexpected expenses. That's number one, I think. Um, number two, making sure you're devoting money uh, to your future, to your retirement plan, to your goals, and establishing those goals, getting those in place so that um, you have a plan in place and you're not just kind of leaning it and deciding maybe halfway through the year, I'm going to get this fixed. Let's get your tax returns together. Also, start talking about with your family, uh, what goals do we have in mind? What do we want to pursue? What are some of our um, objectives that we want to accomplish? Because it's really rewarding when you get to those goals and, and, and uh, it's a happier lifestyle. Hmm. That's really interesting. I'm one of those people that just hates tax time, and I try to ignore it, even when it is rapidly approaching. And um, then my my system, Tom, is to get out a brown paper bag, and if it looks like it might be something to do with taxes, I put it into the brown paper bag. <laughs> is that a good system, Tom? I don't think it is, but if it's effective for you and you uh, feel as though that's an efficient way to get it done, God bless, because um, too often uh, so many of us aren't very good at being organized. And if that's your um, way of keeping yourself organized, Joan, I think it works for you. But I don't yeah. know. You, you know better than I. Well, um, my uh, accountant, like I suppose many accountants now, have a 
they have an online portal where after I accumulate everything in my brown paper bag, I scan it and, and upload it. But, you know, it's I need to have a better plan because, you know, like sometimes I'll make donations. Um, sometimes I donate to an organization on Venmo. Sometimes I donate by writing a check. Um, sometimes I donate with PayPal. And it's easy to lose track of all that. And, and you know, I mean, like when I don't think that I've ever, I know that I think Venmo once a year, they send me an email. They say, you know, hey, if you want to see what you've spent on Venmo the last year, go to this link. And if you don't do it right then, right now, you lose the email and you can't ever find it again. But do you, how do you? Just get people organized. There's so many. It's you know, I was talking to Terry Savage and my eyes rolled up into the back of my head because there's just so many different things to think about. How do you is there any way to simplify it, Tom? You know, I got to tell you, I think it's all every all of us are different. Right. You know, and and I think it's so helpful to get involved with someone, a trusted advisor, somebody that, um, you can sit down with and help you kind of narrow the playing field so that you become more organized and that you're not scattered and that you're not looking for things that really don't apply to you and your situation and your family situation. So if you're new to this, if you're a novice um, and you need that guidance, I think uh, your first stop is maybe to, to reach out to one of the members of our, of our team, maybe set up with a meeting and, and talk a little bit more in detail about how you can get better organized because too often there's lazy money that's out there that's just not earning a very good rate of return and or is not um, invested in such a way that, that, that is sensible for you in your situation. And to get your arms wrapped around all this, I got to tell you, Joe, I don't think it's rocket science. It seems like it's an overwhelming and daunting task, but it really isn't. Uh, and, and once you get organized and it becomes almost like it's automatic and then you become more peaceful and, and you're happy because now you kind of got your arms wrapped around this situation. You're not flying by the seat of your pants. Uh, you so know, you're, that's my thoughts. Well, you're absolutely right because on those occasions where I do um, get myself organized, I always feel, I always feel there's a bit of anxiety that goes away because if you're, if you know you're not organized, you always wonder what you're missing and are you missing something important either something that would help you at tax time or just something that you should be doing right here right now to live a better life um tom we need to take a break i'm talking to tom borsellino who's with megan financial this is our sponsored union strong segment and we will be right back after this this is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is our regular Union Strong sponsored segment. I'm joined by Tom Borsellino with Megan Financial. Megan, well, you know, we shouldn't assume, Tom, that everybody who's listening to us has heard our other Union Strong segments. So let's back up, which I should have done at the very beginning, and I apologize, Tom. I want you to talk about Megan Financial and how you guys work with the unions. We uh, specialize in working with unions, uh, members that are uh, individuals that are members with unions. And so essentially what we do is uh, to kind of give you an idea in terms of format, we conduct uh, educational seminars at uh, maybe a local union hall, for example, and we 
kind of give an overview as to what their pension schemes might look like, you know, what their income is uh, expected to be on a general level. And then uh, we talk about Social Security and their health insurance and, and retirement assets and, and, and how that all comes together when it comes to uh, planning for the retirement. And so we do that on a general, on a general uh, nature and on a group setting. We can't get too individualized because uh, there's, a, there's more than you know, 50, 75, maybe sometimes 100 people at these seminars. And to talk individually is, is, is certainly not a, not, a, not a real good idea to do at that time. But what we'll do after the seminar, we'll meet with uh, our, our union members one-on-one, and we'll, we will explain and go through their personal situation and kind of apply to uh, what they're going on in their lives to their union benefits and the value that these benefits are going to be providing to them during retirement for health insurance, et cetera. And, and we build a plan. And sometimes um, I find it amazing that so many members' benefits look so very much the same, but yet when you meet with them one-on-one, everybody's situation is so very different because of illness, uh, children, uh, more than one, more than just a handful of children. they got a bunch of kids maybe, and kids are expensive these days, uh, and their expenses are different and their priorities are different, and their lifestyles are different. And, and so what we do is, like we talked about earlier before, uh, just a few minutes ago, we, got, we get into the nitty-gritty and we talk about people on an individual basis and make us a personalized uh, a, a plan so that uh, it all fits together for their situation. Like, kind of like we were talking about being disorganized. They, they then become organized, and they have uh, some objectives and some goals and some things to look forward to, which makes life that much more exciting because when you have stuff to look forward to, waking up at 2 or 4 o'clock in the morning to go out and do that, that, that job or that difficult work makes it a little bit easier when you have something that's exciting like a vacation or retirement <laughs> on the horizon. So uh, that's kind of, in a nutshell, what we do, and, and we help people uh, build um, knowledge we help them build confidence for their future retirement. And I, you work with which unions? Um, more than a handful. Uh, or for example, what comes to mind is a local 134, uh, local 701, uh, uh, local 9, um, uh, local 73, just to name a few. We, we work with uh, well over uh, 15 uh, unions easily. Uh, and it just depends on the union, and which makes us different, I think, than most advisors is that, uh, well, than all advisors for the most part, um, we understand what union benefits look like. Uh, and uh, they, 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 the client doesn't have to go back to their union and say, uh, I have some questions about my pension, or I have some questions about how my health insurance works. Because of uh, what we do and what we specialize in doing, we are experts and understanding what these benefits are. And it takes a, a lot of um, question marks out of the equation because we are experts in what we do as it relates to, to union members. And do the union members themselves have to pay you for what you do? No. Um, we are, uh, our objective is to educate. Uh, we ultimately wind up helping our members retire. Uh, and when they uh, retire and they have their pensions in place, their Social Security is ready to go, all their health insurance is in line, if at that point they have assets that uh, need, they need help with investing those assets, 
meet with them uh, again and talk about how to go about positioning those retirement assets uh, so that can be created, for, for example, future growth, future income, um, the list goes on. And that's how we are ultimately compensated is through investing in those assets if those members choose to go with us. And how often do you need to check in with people? I mean, is it like you do it once and then everybody's set? Do people check in with you every year uh, to see if anything needs to be different? Um, at the very least, we reach out to our members once or twice per year. Um, and we also have some annual reviews and we go through uh, their particular situation, their investments, the performance of their accounts. Uh, our phone lines, obviously, are always available for a client's call in case something changes in their life. We encourage uh, phone calls to our office in case there's any changes or any, any, any questions. Um, so it's a two-way street. But at the very least, John, we're reaching out to our clients once or twice a year. Really? That often? Sure. And also through emails as well, too. We send out um, emails once or twice a month. It just kind of updates about what's going on as it pertains to the financial world. Um, a little bit of politics and how those politics affect our uh, investments, because sometimes those politicians make headlines that affect the, and the perception is that they affect our investments. But we try to smooth out that ride uh, and help uh, and our clients understand that nothing is forever, and uh, this too shall pass, and we just have to get through some of these tough times in the markets are making us a little uncomfortable like a roller coaster ride. When you look ahead at 2024, um, and the work you need to do for your clients. What are you keeping a special eye on? You know, um, ultimately the election is coming up, right, in 2024, right? Mm-hmm. This year I think we're, we're well aware of that. I think the most important thing that we have to do for our clients is have a plan in place that no matter what the market does do, whether it go up, down, sideways, that there's always a safe and smart money to take money from if that makes sense. And so what I mean by that is that uh, maintaining um, your long-term goals and also realizing that those goals, sometimes, you know, when you're on a road, that road, you know, you have to take an off-ramp because things change in your life. But you always want to be able to take money from a smart place in a smart time if there's a change in your situation. So we always, always make sure that our clients are set up in such a manner so that we can deviate from our original plan because life, as you know, there's all kinds of curveballs that we're not sometimes prepared for, but we try to prepare our clients so that we are not only addressing the long-term goals, but those short and medium-term goals as well, too. Mm -hmm. I know that a big part of what you do is education, and you and um, some of the other folks at Megan Financial actually do presentations for the unions. Talk about those and what you cover. Yeah, our seminars, uh, our seminars that we cover uh, is financial literacy. You know, we talk about um, the pensions themselves, their local pensions, for example, and uh, some of the choices that they're going to wind up having to make when the time comes for their retirement. Uh, we also talk about a little bit about disability, for example. Some of us aren't able to make it to those retirement dates for uh, for either uh, physical or mental disabilities, and disability uh, becomes part of the equation in terms of how you go about filing for that or how you, you go about um, calculating whether or not the income that you're going to be receiving from those benefits is going to be sufficient to meet your needs. Uh, we also talk about Social Security, like I said, from a retirement perspective, spousal benefits. 
uh, retirement assets, um, allocating your investments to match your prior, match your, um, your, your, uh, your, your time horizon, your risk tolerance, uh, making sure your investments are, are diversified in various buckets, having different objectives because you can't fall in love with any particular bucket. So we cover a wide range of um, topics, uh, and our objective is to provide education to enable our, our clients to, to feel better about their long-term prognosis as well as their short-term prognosis, help them manage through situations where uh, maybe there's some liability and there's some debt that they want to address. I met with a client yesterday to give an example. He retired. Both he and his wife yesterday, uh, he and his wife retired just a couple of months ago. And uh, he was going through his budget. And his budget showed that, you know, he was down maybe three or $400 a month um, from what income he was bringing in versus the expenses going out. So he was upside down. And, and, and so we came to a conclusion or a solution that paying off um, some of these retirement, uh, excuse me, some of these, these liabilities or these debts um, with some of the retirement assets that he has, just a few thousand dollars of paying off debt now puts him back into a position where he's above water on a monthly basis. He's bringing in more than he's putting out. Mm-hmm. And then enables him to build up an emergency. But something as simple as having a second set of eyes look at something and say, you yeah. know what, that's a great idea. And it just gives them the confidence and, and, the, and, the, and the joy of knowing that they're not underwater every month and they're not swimming, trying to get to the top of that, to that, uh, to that water. So um, that's an example of, of just something that we did, I, I did a couple of days ago. Yeah. Um, it's, um, and, you're, and you're right. I thought it was interesting where you were talking about how it's so individual because, you know, you get somebody who's 30 years old and is married and has a couple of kids that's a whole different situation than sitting down with somebody, you know, who's 49 years old and uh, looking at the other end of their career at that moment in time. Um, it really is an, an important service. And I'm so glad that we are able to, to publicize you and the work you do because we're big supporters of unions at WCPT. And so is Megan Financial. And I think, um, I think the synergy is great. And I thank you for being here uh, to talk about all that Megan does. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to, to tell a little bit about our story and about uh, what we do and how we help people. We really appreciate that opportunity. Well, so do we. Uh, Tom Borleano is with Megan Financial, and uh, this is our sponsored Union Strong segment. We're going to take a break and be back with more after this. You know what time it is? Hello. Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Now on WCPT 820. And we are welcoming back David Orr with Good Government Illinois. Hello, David. Happy New Year. How are you? Well, Happy New Year to you. I'm fine, thank you. Uh, glad to hear it. You know, I'm on your uh, Good Government Illinois mailing list, so I keep mm-hmm. an eye on all of the presentations and get-togethers that you do and the podcasts that you do. And uh, much to my surprise... Uh, you had on your most recent podcast 
someone who has been kind of absent from public life lately. Um, certainly not was absent much more so than she had been previously. Former Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot sat down with you. Please. That podcast is available as of today, right? Yeah, it's a couple of days, actually. Uh, a couple of days? And people can... They can hear it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or uh, a variety of ways to listen to it if they want to. Um, well, and by if you're, are you going to ask me about that so I can tell you a little bit? Well, please do. <laughs> okay. Well, well, I was say, well, I, say, I thought she was pretty, pretty, um, very helpful and frank. Uh, the reason we wanted to talk to her, and by the way, uh, Elisa Kaplan, who you know, who is executive director of Reform for Illinois, she co-hosted it with me. So I appreciate that. She's a real expert on a lot of reform issues. Um, but what we wanted to dig at is, okay, well, now, so Burke gets convicted. Uh, so what was the kind of relationship there? And, and so the larger question was pretty much on, on the kind of the corruption part of the deal is, what has been done? What's been done to make progress to try and reduce Chicago's terrible image of pay-to-play politics? Uh, and what else still needs to be done and what's practical and what might she suggest? And they also spent a little time on affordable housing because it's an issue very dear to me and I think very important for this city. So, um, you know, so that we talked about and obviously she had lots to say. She um, wasn't on the show to be necessarily commenting on the current mayor, you know, Brennan Johnson. But, um, uh, you know, she she felt like many of us and not to pick on Burke when he's down. But, you know, many of us feel like, my God, why it take so many years to catch this? I mean, again, we don't have um, well, we don't have too much proof. Although I think there's an overwhelming amount of evidence despite that. But, you know, he's been doing that since the day he walked into the office. Um, but I would confidently say, yes, I believe that's been the case. Um, she did raise one thing that I've often been very concerned about, and she raised it that, um, remember, uh, in previous times when Burke was there, the uh, finance chair was always in charge of workman's comp, and nobody could even get him out of that. I mean, uh, Richard uh, Richard M. Daly uh, couldn't shake him of that. Rom, in other words, there was an attempt to kind of rein that in. Uh, Lori finally was able to save millions and millions of dollars because of what is a very corrupt workman's comp plan. And, and that's an important issue to everybody, workman's comp, okay? But if, again, like, never pay to play and all that stuff means, from my experience in all these years, is basically you help your friends mm-hmm. get money, they give it back to you. Well, how do you do that, okay? And one of the key words that Lori talked about, and I like that, is you monetize your office. You monetize your office, whether you're a state rep, an alderman, whatever it may. And what that means, like for workman's comp, if you can, let's say, instead of being two or three steps to get workman's comp, okay, if you can change that to maybe four or five steps, okay, well, there's a whole bunch of other people have to come in, and therefore they have to collect more money. And then for those people who you might argue, you know, deserve, you know, six months, eight months, whatever, but sometimes their stuff went on indefinitely. So there could be, you know, precinct captain's type or workman's comp and just kind of get lost, okay, when these things end up taking years rather than literally months. So just one example of that's been going on um, as long as I remember. Um, 
And number one, I went to the city council. Uh, Burke was, uh, you know, chair, chairman at that time of the finance committee. Um, and by the way, just for these little sidebars, the, the main reason that Burke was able to keep his committee after, after Harold Washington got the tie vote. So Harold Washington was elected in 83, there was a special election in 86, and it became a 25-25. But one of the 25 members, a good woman named Marion Vellini from the 48th Ward, uh, she was supportive on a lot of issues, but she would not go along with taking the committee away from Burke. So hmm. while uh, um, many of the other things, and that's when I, I got a committee for the first time, other people got committees, um, but she wasn't willing to do that. So the compromise we worked out then in 1986, um, a year before Harold was reelected, was that he would keep the finance committee, but Larry Blumen would, would become a chairman of what we call the budget committee. So we couldn't take Burke out of it. We were able to at least split up some of the, um, some of the responsibilities and therefore, um, you know, it was a big help to our side. But anyway, so we talked a lot about these kinds of things. It was mm-hmm. very instructive. Well, what did the mayor have to say specifically? Well, specifically, she um, um, she also pointed out what one thing we know, which has nothing to do with what she or others did, is that one of the things which happens to be in the papers today, because uh, Andy Shaw wrote a pretty significant article about reform, um, Andy, you know, is the board of directors of Change Illinois. Where did he write that? Um, I believe it was in the Sun Times. Okay. okay, I think that's where I saw it. Um, but the first thing I was going to say is, you know, the use of moles and uh, wiretaps and stuff like that is that, you know, some of these people are so uh, deep in the system, they've got such power that it really takes a snake to catch a snake, so to speak. And so that's one of the things that we have. Some people don't like it. Um, Lori even, you know, complained about the fact that. Uh, Danny Solis might get away scot-free. We keep his pension. And while well, there, yeah, there have been some people complaining that, you know, Solis should have done some prison time. But, you know, I, I know how the feds work, and they wouldn't have been able to do a lot of what they did without Solis participating, without Solis wearing a wire. And, you know, if you're, if you're going to stick your neck out like that, it's, it's not unreasonable that the feds, you know, um, assure you that they won't, there won't be any jail time. Yeah, so in this case, you're, you're going to, it frustrates all of us, but in, in fact, I'm just saying these are the, the tools. So one was just these tools. These tools are very important because you're dealing with some really powerful, savvy people. But the other key things, one of the most important things that Lori did, to two areas where she did some really good things, which led to some of these changes. Uh, the most important being was kind of changing the definition of conflict of interest, okay? Um, in other words, one of the things that people like me hear me scream about all the time, how can, you know, Burke be, you know, chairman of the finance committee when he represents this airline and that airlines at the airport and they all uh-huh. have to come before them or represents Trump or one of the things they got convicted for indirectly was his work, which is the, the biggest scandal in all of Chicago, Cook County, by the way, is the one when it comes to uh, all these powerful attorneys uh, working to get people tax appeals, property tax appeals. You know, nothing wrong with someone seeking or getting a private tax appeal. There's something terribly wrong when the Burks and the Berrioses and the, and the uh, Madigans and others use their powerful law firms uh, to lean on people uh, in order to get the business. And then the other side of it, which most, most people don't really understand now, and that's why I'm always on my little 
little horse on this thing is that probably the, the single worst office in all of government in Chicago and Cook County presently is the Board of Review because it does more damage to people, meaning that everybody pays hundreds and hundreds of dollars. It's been estimates of 700 to 1,000. They pay more in their property taxes every year, and that includes the, the people with the very uh, you know, overloaded and relatively poor neighborhoods for their houses. You know, $700 more or up to $1,000 more because of all these deals, and the deals between powerful politicians, the attorneys, the pay-to-play politics, Trump and Trumpites, so forth. We reduce, reduce your assessments. We give you a break. Then you don't have to pay his taxes as much, but who pays the difference? Everybody mm-hmm. else. So, but back to the key point here is that um, I always felt that was a direct conflict of interest. Nobody else in the country used to do it like we did in Chicago. But finally, she was able to uh, make it clear that if you have, if your outside income is a conflict of interest, then you're in trouble. Okay. And by the way, after that, actually, it went through in the city council. Burke uh, left officially his law firm, although I think he put his daughter in there after that. <laughs> Um, but the point is that that's one of the biggest scams of all. Okay. Because in the real world, people, you know, in the real world, people feel pressure, you know, and that's the other thing connecting it quickly. We don't just stand this too long, but on the automatic prerogative, you know, you want, you want to hear from all of them. You want all of them to have advice on, well, don't close this street in the middle of this thing, or don't do this or, or do do this. But people got to remember, and, and maybe I'm older than most of your listeners, but there was a deal cut. Okay, it was an informal deal. It's not going to be anywhere in the in the legal <laughs> in the legal books. But the formal deal was when Old Man Daly, Richard J. Daly, the very powerful political boss um, who died quite a while ago. But the deal was, and if you know which date was this, you vote my way every time. I will cut off your legs if you don't. You vote my <laughs> way all the time. It wasn't. No uh, yeah, asked. it wasn't a, okay. a big negotiation. No, no, it was, and, but in return, because these are powerful people. You know, these are, you know, Tom Keene, uh, said the finance committee at one point. He was a very powerful attorney himself and lawyer. And Paul Lagoda, the guy up in the 49th Ward that was convicted in my district a long, long time ago. Uh, these were not slouches, okay? So what did Daly give them in return? Quote, automatic prerogative, okay? Your kings and queens in your ward. I don't care what you do. You've got these permits, all these little things, and you can, quote, monetize all, in all sorts of ways. And frankly, there's good aldermen that don't do that. They don't exploit the little business person because they know that person's going to have to come to them for the permit. But frankly, we've had lots of not-so-good aldermen, lots and lots of not-so-good aldermen that use that all the time um, and, it, and still all the time. And all you got to do is look at people's financial records. And so it's very hard if you have a business, either big or small, um, in these wards, and you know that that singular alderman can deny you, as Burke tried to do and got in trouble, deny you this permit or that permit, or, you know, we'll, we'll make sure these people understand who they're dealing with, that kind of stuff. So anyway, changing that. So no longer can you have outside income if it conflicts with your fiduciary responsibility as an alderman and your first responsibility is the public and the public tax dollars, okay? So you couldn't have Ed Burke cutting a big deal from the airlines or getting all the passenger jobs that he used to 
uh, I, I'm sure I've told this story. I'll tell it real quickly if you allow me. Sure, sure. Um, because these are real world stories are what you know. I learned so much. So I'm teaching way back in the '70s, I believe, um, at Mundelein College at that point, and a, and a student, um, one of the older students, older me, 30s, you know, had a had a job <laughs> working out the, at the at the airport. And uh, I went out there when I was flying or something and visited her one time and, and stopped by and I stopped at her office and I saw these Ed Burke stationery. And they said, oh, what's all the, uh, what's all the stuff you're getting from Ed Burke? And she says, well, they're resumes. And I say, well, what did you do with them? And she says, well, what do you think we do with them? He's chairman of the finance committee. Um, and again, this is, this is down at her level, okay? Mm-hmm. But, and, and again, that's what everybody knows when we say pay to play. Everybody knows. Not everybody does it. Not everybody's a jerk. You know, there's machine people that have good values and so forth. But so many people exploited this, and that's where the automatic prerogative can be dangerous when you've got so many less than honorable aldermen. Let's put it like that. And we have our, our share. And even those who would consider themselves the reformers and the lefties, you know, with, with again, with Carlos, frankly, getting into all this trouble because the zoning chair who was threatening people, you didn't hear, your issues are never going to get out of the zoning committee if you don't vote the way I tell you to. Um, you know, it's I, naive. I do want to get, I, I, I do <laughs> yes, get so eventually back to Lori, but I want to talk to you about Carlos yes. because I'm reading that there are behind-the-scenes um, machinations going on to try to bring Carlos back. What is that going to happen, and what do you think about that? Well, I think I think the mayor is trying very hard. It's no secret anymore. I'm glad it's in the news because I don't think it should be done secretly. You know, the, this was this was their top guy. This is Carlos. He wasn't just chairman of the zoning committee. He was floor, you know, uh, floor captain, floor leader. Um, so very, very top position. Anybody with brains who had listened, and again, Carlos has his skills, okay, but being a floor leader is certainly not one of them. He, he's more the type to cut your, you know, what off rather than um, try and negotiate with you and figure out a, a good compromise. Um, so, yes, he's trying to do that. Uh, of course, I think it would be a travesty because, remember, I'm sitting here talking about and Burke went down. God knows, been getting away with it for years. Madigan getting away with stuff for for decades. We go on and on with the people who have gone to jail. The worst record of any city in the country. Um, and not everybody's bad, but there's enough of them. But we need to try and clean house because and I'll come right back. Remember, corrupt government or pay-to-play government is inefficient government. It's unfair government. That's if we had time, we'd go into it. But the point here for Carlos is. What message are you sending? You can say, oh, well, he said he was sorry, blah, blah, blah. This is a person <laughs> that physically blocked people, including all the women like Emma Mitz from entering the meeting, physically blocked them, and then threatened a number of people that he'd mess up their zoning stuff. So, again, I don't dislike Carlos as a person, but I think it's a terrible sign for the Johnson administration to take this direction. They need to kind of crawl out of some of these holes that have been created and um, and kind of see that might say the finer things of what the Chicago government has to offer. So um, I just think it's a big, big mistake. But but he may well win it. Let's keep that in mind. He may really? well win it. Well, because the real world, I mean, this pressure I'm still talking about. You know, we we have a lot of people like the U.S. senators we laugh about all the time that you know denounce Trump. You know, February, and then say the greatest thing since sliced bread and 
in March and, you know, they're just all over the map because they're following political signals. Their character is lost someplace in the bathroom. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it's often the same way with certain other, other elected officials. Um, and again, there's plenty of good ones, so I want to be careful here. But it's just a terrible signal, you know, mm-hmm, that we're mm-hmm. going to excuse this. You know, this is not a person that just came into office, okay? Um, uh, and these things have been kind of going on. And so I just think it's a wrong, I think it's a wrong signal. You may, you may be sympathetic to Carlos if he had all this great stuff and then he lost it. But, you know, you don't do those things. And to, to signal, well, I'm going to give him back his thing. But, again, I would not be shocked if they have the votes to do that because, um, you know, even Emma Mitz, after all the stuff that Carlos did to her, she did not vote to oust him. Okay? Other people have lots of interests, and they're afraid. Mm-hmm. I mean, Daly had his old machine. A lot of the other of them are afraid of new things. They're afraid of, why did Brandon Johnson win? Because he had powerful ground troops, whether from CTU or some of their parent organizations. Okay, these are no slouches. These are, yeah. you know, and I think I'm, I'm all for activists. I think it's wonderful. We need more good activists. But you know, these people are threatened by by that. It's almost like the you're getting primary. We talk about in terms of the, the national government. So but yes, I I want to interrupt for a mistake. second because I wanted to. I wanted before we have to break for news. I wanted to. Um, I wanted to ask you, when you were talking to Lori Lightfoot for your most recent uh, podcast, did you talk at all, um, did she talk at all about her time in office and how she views it now or what she thinks went right or wrong? Did you revisit any of that? Not really. Um, I can't remember. There might have been little things. No, our, our focus wasn't on that. It wasn't to say, well... What did you do? Unless I good or bad. Our focus was was really honed in on, like I say, Burke and and the whole. Um, what can we do to make this better? What can we do to uh, better laws? And again, so that's mostly we talked about. And besides the one, the one big issue I talked about affordable housing. So we talked about these kinds of things and the automatic prerogative and campaign finance reform and these conflicts of interest. That's what our focus was. Um, we didn't have all the time in the world. And remember. Um, Elisa and I were sharing uh, responsibilities. So, yeah, I, she, she'd be glad to come back, and I'd be glad to discuss those things as well. But no, that was not well, When our you focus. asked her um, what still needs to happen, what should the focus be on, what was one thing that she specifically mentioned? Well, she, um, she, she, some of the things I've already mentioned, things which she was, quote, proud of, the things that she said didn't go far enough, particularly had to do um, with campaign finance reform. You know, we talked about uh, one thing that they're talking down, downtown right now, we need to change. You know, we have the 1500 limit. The 1500 limit is, is one limit we have um, where both a law in the city and law in the county, both of which I had something to do with, basically said, if you're a contract with a city, you can only give an elected official, if it's with the city, the city, or the county. Uh, right now, it's $1,500. Now, of course, you might argue it should, they shouldn't be able to give or shouldn't have to give anything. But that law is being extraordinarily misused, at least from the way we thought about it when we passed it in 86, because of the great help of Harold Washington um, in 86 and 87, the idea we thought, well, that was all. But now we're finding out, you 
know, you get 1500 from the business, but then you get 1500 from the executive director of the business. Or the, the <laughs> and 1500 or, uh, from somebody the and then 1500 from each of their exactly, children. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And that, of course, destroys what her whole goal is. Okay. She emphasized particularly uh, the big money she thought was the real issue, the big money, um, not just from contractors and stuff, but particularly when people would break the cap. Okay, when people would break the cap so that so they could bring in much larger funds, and that happens all the time, where one person who is wealthier goes ahead and breaks what they call the cap. Um, and we talked about more needed to be done in the area of automatic prerogative. Um, you know, again, like I said earlier, yes, you want Alderman's opinion. But, you know, if we didn't have this horrible history, okay, and stuff still happening, the Danny Solis, the Burks, and we could go on and on if we wanted to, there's a lot of stuff still happening. All you have to do is look at the financial records. Um, so it would be different if we had a bunch of um, you know, choir boys and girls or something, uh, but we don't. Um, and so we should discourage anything that allows us monetizing your office. Yeah. And I know you feel strongly about this, David. Um, and of course, we saw Ed Burke convicted of uh, all but one of the charges against him. But there's the other side of this coin. He is 80 years old. And uh, some of these things he's convicted of uh, carry a potential maximum of 20 years. And I think he's been convicted of 13 or 14 different different counts. Um, so even though he has been found guilty, even though he has done things he should not, should a judge on sentencing take his age into account? Okay, here's my judgment on whether you think I'm too harsh or not. Okay, Ed Burke's of the world have dramatically harmed the lives of so many people, okay? The system of the pay-to-play politics, the racial politics, the lack of fairness, the fact that different wards get different, different services and so forth, these are extraordinarily serious things. And if we want to have a better government, our message shouldn't be, oh, well, we'll send the governor off to the farm in Wisconsin. We'll send this person off to the farm, uh, send this person up to the farm. Um, and everybody knows it means nothing. Or they, they get away with this stuff for 30, 40 years before they're convicted. and They are able to delay things and sentences until they're older and older. So all this, my view, is different. Um, you need to strengthen. You need to be able to pay a price if you're going to try and discourage uh, some of these people. We, we throw people in the slammer for God knows how long for smoking dope. Thankfully, there's people in this country, uh, mostly Democrats, that are, you know, letting some of those people out. Okay, now, mm-hmm. that now it's legal in many places. Um, but so, so it's got to be some look at the larger picture. And, you know, I don't want to allow a few crooked politicians to be looked at differently because they've been able to get away with it for so long. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, while other people, like I say, they got caught with a little, little bit more than a nickel bag, perhaps, in 1980, and they still could be in a slammer. Um, anyway, so, yes, no, I, uh, I don't care if they take age into consideration. I just think it's a much less important thing for the, the taxpayers and citizens of Chicago and indirectly Cook County as well to take the damage that's done. Uh, and again, you don't have to prove all that, but if anyone believes that Ed Burke was doing this stuff 
uh, and hassling a fast food restaurant, okay, with millions and millions of dollars in the bank, his wife, a Supreme Court judge, all sorts of things. If you think that was the only time he was doing stuff like this, well, then you might as well, you know, <laughs> join another world. So, again, you can't, you should never be convicting or sentencing people on, on your suspicions of other things. But I think it's serious, and uh, I think it would be a mistake to, like, I, I'm not but but to give too light a sentence for something this serious. Wow. Um, interesting, an interesting point. Um, yeah. David, we are going to, <coughs> I'm talking to David Orr with Good Government Illinois. We are going to be taking a break for news. And when we come back, I'm going to talk to him a little bit more about his recent podcast where he talked with former Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. I also want to talk to him about the Cook County State's Attorney's race and some other things. But first, before um, Andy cranks up the news machine, we have a couple of contests today uh, where we are going to be giving away uh, two pairs of tickets. The first pair of tickets I'm going to give away right now. It is for, if you love politics, uh, the North Shore Center in Skokie, North Shore Center for the Performing Arts. It's, uh, it's close to Old Orchard, so it's easy to get to if you live in the city, and it's certainly easy to get to if you live in the northern suburbs. Uh, the Capitol Fools are going to be there. They used to be the Capitol Steps. A lot of people uh, saw them under that name. They've now rebranded themselves as the Capitol Fools. They do topical political humor. They do songs. They do skits. It's like Saturday Night Live, only it is all politics, and it's all current. I mean, believe me, if something happens in the news, they will work it into the show that night. If you are the second caller, second caller to 773-763-9278, we will give you a couple of tickets. They're going to be here February 3rd and 4th. Again, it's the North Shore Center in Skokie, February 3rd and 4th. Of the Capital Fools, 773-763-9278. If um, you want to find out more about them or maybe uh, you just want to go ahead and buy some tickets, you can go online to NorthShoreCenter.com. Tickets, we are told by North Shore, though, the tickets are selling very fast. It's not a, it's not a huge venue there. So uh, they usually sell out when they come. So if you're thinking it might be fun, I would move sooner rather than later if you don't win a couple of tickets today. We are going to give a couple of tickets away uh, every day, all week long. So, um, you know, you can keep trying here. Our contests on WCPT 820 are open to anybody as long as they're 18 years of age or older, live in the greater Chicagoland, northwest Indiana area. One entry per person, one winner per household, void where prohibited by law. Listeners may only win or qualify to win once every 30 days. If you want the complete rules, they are on our website, WCPT820.com. Click on the contest tab. David Orr and I will be right back after we take a break for news. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT820. And I am joined by David Orr. He has been with Good Government Illinois for quite a while now. He recently uh, posted a podcast 
where he talked to former Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Uh, David, I'm curious, in your conversation, did Lori mention either Governor Pritzker or Mayor Johnson? Compliments, criticisms, advice, anything? Um, nothing directly. I, I don't. Uh, the only stuff that came up, um, particularly relating to uh, Mayor Johnson, uh, just very quickly, because we, we want to get to unaffordable housing a little bit. One of the things that Lori had been scheming while she was mayor, she put away uh, r- roughly a, a billion dollars with a B uh, from all sorts of uh, financial sources, including um, TIF money, that's tax income and fines and other things, um, for a big plan for affordable housing all across the city. Okay, not just what she talks about sometimes in in West and Southwest. And so um, it only came up because that money has been put aside for specific things in affordable housing. And I did ask her and um, she she basically uh, I can't remember her words exactly, but she said, well, I certainly hope the new mayor implements their plans. Okay. now, again, so that means um, those who support affordable housing and understand its need can argue, yes, we we need that to go ahead. The money's been put aside, Uh, you know, whether or not the Johnson administration would choose to use the money in different ways. Um, But that was about the only um, reference there. I think, like I said, but I wasn't, remember, I wasn't pushing those kind of questions. I was, okay, do you want to take shots at these other people or pass on compliments? It was really a focus on these things about uh, Burke and how do we, how do we reduce or minimize or get rid of the pay-to-play politics in, in Chicago and Cook County? Well, um, switching over to another topic, uh, Kim Fox has announced that she is going to be leaving as Cook County State's Attorney. Um, it seems that um, the consensus is that, you know, she she came in to try to do good and she did some good. Some people think that um, she went a little too far in certain areas. And um, a lot of people are she said that she told her family she would only run for two terms, but she would have had a very, very, very tough reelection had she decided to go uh, for another term um, because there has been a lot of controversy over some of her decisions and some of the policies she instituted. We now have Clayton Harris and um, Eileen uh, Eileen Burke and. um I'm wondering if you have any thoughts. Um, well, I always have thoughts, but <laughs> you don't want to let me let me loose. Um, well, I'm not making a prediction on that race. I do know, um, I would say, lots of progressive organizations seem to be lining up with Clayton Harris, um, and people should know that Ms. Burke is not related to Ed Burke. Um, I, I think some of these issues, remember, there's so much their politics and talk about um, the state's attorney's office. Um, you know, as, remember, we sometimes, I think, exaggerate um, how much the state's attorney's office controls certain things. Okay. I, I would say we're looking sometimes in the wrong direction. I would suggest to you, and this might be a lightning rod itself, is the most important thing with crime rates, particularly in Chicago, is looking at the Chicago police. And we know, we don't really know how, mo- how many folks really kind of laid down the job a little bit. We've got plenty of good police. But I think, uh, I, I think there's so much more to it than whether or not 
uh, people like Kim Fox are trying to understand that there's still a lot of racial injustice in our courts, how we do things. Um, you know, once you go on about that, that I, I'm not an expert there and we don't have the time. So I think we overdo though. She was too quote progressive. She wanted to fight crime like anybody else, but you, you can't ignore some of these things the way certain people have been treated over the years because of color that should not stop you from being, um, quote, tough on crime, whatever word you want to use. But, um, I, I'm suggesting that sometimes that's really more talk, 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 political BS sides back and forth. Um, there's a lot of particular rules you have to follow in running that office. Um, well, let's take one I example. Say, I mean, she changed mm-hmm. to, um, like, if you're shoplifting, it used to be $500 or more was a felony, and I believe she moved it up to $1,000. And there are those who say that that's why we had such a wild increase in smash and grabs and cars driving into the front of Michigan Avenue stores and people, um, you know, hordes of people cleaning out the stores uh, because it was now more difficult to get charged with a felony. Let's use that as an example, because that's something that she did. That was her policy. Was it a good policy or a bad policy, David? Okay, okay. I'm not an expert on that. I will say this. Many, many other cities that have not had the smash and grab did exactly what Kim Fox did. You got to remember, you only have a certain number of attorneys and you've got lots of crime. Okay, and so many of state's attorneys all over the country have done the same thing because they have to they have to lead. Leading means you make decisions. We're going to spend a lot of time, for example, on some of these smaller things, but we're not. The second part of this, and again, I'm not an expert. I don't buy the second part. That's not why people are I mean, smashing a car and, and ripping off, in some cases, thousands and thousands of dollars. That's, I mean, that would not be hard to get a felony in any, any case. So, again, not, not being an ex- ex- expert here, so you don't have to necessarily listen to me. But, no, I, I don't think that's, <laughs> that's not why some of these people we see, these horrible things going on where people scare the hell out of everybody and smash up a store and grab stuff. Uh, no, because remember, there's plenty of other cities that have done the same thing, and they're not experiencing some of that. I think we, you know, we're suffering from the lack of um, what unified support with our police. Okay, and we, we need. What, do you, what exactly really do you mean by that? Or, uh, what I mean, mean by that is we're so divided on the police. It doesn't help when you've got a right wing person, a bit of a fanatic as head of the union. Okay. Um, what we need is to be, there's nothing wrong with being fighting hard to protect our citizens at the same time, not uh, allowing policemen to use undue force. Those things go together in many places here. And sometimes in Chicago, because of politics and in this case, I, I blame it a lot on the union head. We are divided on things we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be fighting to say, well, some officers are laying down on the job so someone like Larry Lightfoot might lose. Okay. At the same time, we're saying, oh, well, you know, we're not doing anything about either the prosecutors or these cops that beat the living hell out of somebody and got scot free on it. Um, those are not conflicting things. That's what I mean by unified. But our politics is what's dividing us. And similar, that's why I was saying the state attorney's race, it's 
too much the politics dividing us. Um, but again, it's very hard to do something about that. In, in democracy, uh, there's all sorts of things we're discovering. And well, uh, we're not a full democracy, but a republic that, that respects some democratic principles. You, you need you you rely so much on people agreeing with those things, and we've lost our track in a lot of ways. There, I mean, so I'm always looking for ways cut some of the political BS. Those are not conflicting ideas of either trying to, as Kim Fox did in some of these cases, as everyone has to do some of this stuff, of maybe making certain things not a top priority. Uh, that doesn't mean she's for letting smash and grab happen. Um, so I think we should, <laughs> there's, there's ways, I believe, and I'm not the expert, that we can do a better job here. Um, but I think it's also the kind of people we hire. Um, you know, here's a case ironically with some of the TV shows you see are helpful sometimes. You know, you need you do need prosecutors that are not just so driven by every victory. Uh, you need prosecutors that are fair-minded. You need less race involved in many of the decisions. Uh, you need better better treatment of people when they're in the jails. I mean, there's all sorts of things that go into why we are not solving our crime problems the way we should. Um, and I think they can be done. And go back to your main thing, let's hope one of these two people, one of them is going to be state's attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And let's hope one of those will minimize the political footballs back and forth and focus on how do we achieve both justice for all people, fairness when it comes to race and equity, et cetera. Um, but still the best crime fighting tactics we can use. David, correct me if I'm wrong, (laughs) but in talking about elections, um, you know, the democratic party, uh, you know, gets behind a candidate, um, especially they, they fight for that candidate, especially if they're an incumbent, but, it seems to me in recent years, um, we're seeing more challenges. Is that, I don't know if that's because of the breakup of the machine and people see that, you know, they maybe have a shot. I mean, look at the, um, look at the, um, the clerk's uh, circuit court of, uh, Cook County. Um, we've right. got a Democrat in office, Iris Martinez. She had the party's backing. And yet in the current, in, she has a primary challenger who's also a Democrat, Mariana Seropoulos. Um, it, is that sort of thing seems to me to be happening more often that, you know, getting the party behind you isn't the be all and end all that it was maybe when the machine was uh, more powerful. What do you think? Well, remember, it's not the be all. But remember, uh, a little a little guy like me way back in what 1990 <laughs> and that's uh, been 20, 24 years now uh, did that. I was not the party nominee and I ran mm-hmm. uh, for county clerk and, and won. Um, I would say it's, again, it's, people are still afraid. Yeah, the machine's not the same, but they're still afraid. You know, they get a lot of crap if they run against what the party wants. Um, but sometimes it's a little different. I mean, for in this case, it seemed to be that clear that um, you take the county board president, who's very powerful in these decisions and so forth. Uh, she showed a lot of sympathy to Marianas Palopoulos, who is the leading candidate, I think, in this race. And she does have the party backing. But there's other factors at work. I mean, Mariana, for example, has uh, a sizable fundraising. Okay, so that makes it easier to take on the party. 
Um, they still try. They still try and kick your butt if you don't follow what the party wants. But it's certainly not like it was with Richard J. Daly. Um, so I think it's really more opportunity and so forth. So that's why I think you're probably seeing more of this stuff. Um, I don't want to leave without saying what I think is the most important race. And you're going to think I'm nuts. Um, I mean, these races, state's terms are important, okay? But there's a race that could make a totally change in the politics of Chicago and Cook County. And that goes back to what I was talking before about, and that's the Board of Review. This obscure office, you know, that Burke and Madigan also kind of, you know, kind of helped create or at least to, to run it the way they wanted to. Um, and they had Burials before. Burials is out now, so the Board of Review is trying to do all the same things that Burials did for decades. But there's only three of them. There's only three members of the Board of Review. And there's only one up now. And we did, we had one big election with Samantha Steele. Yes. She was a reformer and she beat one of the three. Okay. Now there's another race up between um, the incumbent, a guy named Larry Rogers, versus an opponent, um, an African-American woman who's an assessor clerk down the south suburbs uh, named Larisha Tucker. Okay. Now, that most people do not understand what the Board of Review does. Uh, but my opinion, whether it's worth it or not, is that it's one of the worst offices in government. And I said earlier, if you remember me babbling on about the $700 everyone pays every year uh, in extra because of the things like the Board of Review mistakes that it makes. The reason I say this is you may have a different candidate in the race or whatever. I'm saying that if, in fact, this Ms. Tucker could win this thing, she and Samantha Steele are now, are now a majority then, if that happened. So I'm just saying if people want to see real change, particularly about why they're paying unnecessarily high property taxes in some cases because of the deals cut for Trump Tower and others, then look at this race. Pay attention mm-hmm. to it. Now, remember, it's not the whole county. It's only one-third of the county, a good swath of south and southwest. But everybody's affected by it. So pay a little attention. I mean, this the problem is... is- I I did not understand the functioning of all of this before our many conversations, and I feel like I sort of have a grasp of it now. And I know that you were very pleased that Fritz Kage got elected, but uh, Fritz Kage can reassess downtown all he wants. But if it goes to the Board of Review and they reverse it, it doesn't do any good. And that's... um you know, that's part of what happened. I mean, um, with this last round of downtown businesses that Fritz Kage reassessed, some of those reassessments were either knocked down or tossed out because of the Board of Review. And as you have pointed out, and I have now learned, that means the tax burden that would have been better shouldered by companies and corporations uh, goes over to us, who are the um, residential, residential homeowners. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and again, again, these are very complex things, okay? And sure, there could be uh, mistakes made uh, by Fritz's office. There could be times when maybe the Board of Review might make a decision where someone, times change, you know, vacancies in offices. So it's a complex process. But what I am trying to eliminate okay, is the pay-to-play politics and all the shenanigans that take place in that board of review, including some people, you know, convicted, the FBI stuff and other things. It really is bad news for average taxpayers, okay? 
And a lot of times, you know, there's what, you know, lots and lots of aldermen, lots and lots of state reps, lots of state senators. Here, there's one race that could totally change the politics there. Um, and so it, it's not like Fritz is still having dramatic influences in good ways. Fritz Kage, I think, and, and getting lots of honors everywhere. And a nice editorial recently by the newspapers talking about how good it is to have two reformers there, Fritz and Samantha, the Board of Review. I'm only mentioning that in the real world of politics, a lot of races you can support, and they may not make a whole lot of difference. Here is one that will make a world of difference. Yeah. Um, uh, David, we have a caller who's been waiting to join the conversation. Steve is on the line. Hey, Steve, you're on with me and David Orr. Please go ahead. Yes, I wanted to make a couple of points, and I think uh, Mr. Orr is absolutely correct. I mean, sometimes uh, as an elected official, you just get dealt a bad hand, and and I'm not the biggest fan of Kim Fox, but at the same time, you know, you you need to sort of take a larger view of this issue. What was happening in Chicago was a nationwide phenomenon. I mean, uh, you know, starting in 2020, you know, young people weren't in school. There was nothing going on. You know, we were in the midst of COVID, and then, of course, what happened in Minneapolis with regard to George Floyd set off uh, a a nationwide protest movement, and the police were back on their heels. And a lot of proactive policing went by the wayside because nobody wanted to be accused of wrongdoing. And, you know, it was basically, okay, well, show up, do your job. But, you know, this idea of going after the bad guys, you know, uh, that sort of fell by the wayside until, you know, we could have a different atmosphere as far as policing. And I'd argue now we're sort of back in the old style of policing in terms of the support of the community after a number of years of high crime rates and this sort of thing. You know, police, uh, the the people are asking the police to get out there and, you know, uh, be sort of tough on crime. So the pendulum swings. But uh, this notion that, you know, this is a uniquely Chicago phenomenon, it just doesn't hold up. I, I, I do business all over this country, and including places like Orange County, California. Orange County, California is, is a red center of politics out there. And, and this sort of thing was going on there. It was going on in Houston when I was doing business down there. It goes on all over the country. And, and so sometimes we sort of want to nail somebody with it, as this sort of uh, post hoc ergo proctor hoc, after, therefore, because of. After Kim Fox becomes uh, the state's attorney, uh, crime goes up, so therefore she's to blame because crime goes up. I'm sorry, that that's not the way things work. And and uh, and as your guest points out, okay, it's it, there's no one person who's actually able to uh, institute policy changes that would that would impact this meaningfully. I mean, Kim Fox does not control judges in Cook County. That's a separate entity. Kim Fox does not control Cook County Jail. And if Tom Dart wants to say, for instance, uh, clean out the jail, uh, especially during COVID, because he didn't want to risk lawsuits and uh, and everything else that goes with it, you know, then that means more people are going to be on the streets, more people are going to be on electronic monitoring. And if they cut off those uh, those monitors and go out and commit more crimes, that's not the fault of, of Kim Fox. And, and, and as uh, your guest has alluded to, you know, police, you know, it's, it, she does not control how police decide to police. So there's all of these things that, that go into these equ- equations. And, uh, you know, so, I, again, she was dealt a bad hand and, you know, uh, but she's not alone. And I, I think that, you know, some, somebody else is perhaps going to make you a lot of promises with regard to what they're going to do to address crime going forward. What's clear is that we cannot lock our way up uh, out of this uh, out of this issue. You know, we, we can put people away, 
And, and this is the last point I'll make in terms of the things like the retail theft issue. And New York uh, did, did some research. They found out that only a handful of people, a couple of hundred people in that entire city were responsible for about half of all the retail theft that was going on. So, yes, those people you need to go after, but not everybody. And, you know, some idiot who decided, you know, on a whim to do something. And, and as Mr. Orr has pointed out, yeah, the, the people who crash a car into the Prada store, that's already a felony. Because virtually all those cars are stolen, so they're already committing a felony. And once they crash into the Prada store, that's felony damage to property, so before they even touch an item. And once they grab something, there's nothing in the Prada store, trust me, perhaps a wallet that's less than $1,000. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it's important to understand these things. Thanks very much for the call, Steve. Well, well, well spoken. <laughs> yes, he's hey, always way, very well spoken. Joan, be, before I forget, just for your listeners who want that contest, I don't know if you can hear me, but I've seen the Capitol Steps now with a different name at that theater. Um, it's a great theater. And with her, oh, they're so, such an exciting, funny, talented group. Oh, I do. I, yeah, I, I saw them years second. ago when they were still called the, the Capitol Steps. And uh, and it was a it was a delightful it was a delightful evening. You know, do you know their origin? Um, when Illinois Senator Chuck Percy was that was his mm-hmm. name Charles Percy? Yeah, he yeah, was Percy. having yep. mm-hmm. yeah he was having a holiday get together for staff, and some of his staff got together and wrote up songs and skits about what was going on in politics. And it was such a huge hit, they kept doing it, and then they decided that this is what they wanted to do, and they went out, and that was the Capitol Steps iteration, and they started touring. And um, and that was how they originally were, were formed. I mean, these are people like David, like me, like you, if you're listening to this station, who really love politics. And that's why I said I can't tell you exactly what kind of uh, topics they're going to deal with on February 3rd and 4th. But I guarantee you, whatever big stories there are happening that day or the day before, they will be referenced because these people uh, love their politics and they are they are very democratic, very progressive and very, uh, very talented. When did you go see them, David? Oh, it's probably been about no, seven or eight years. But I, I have to just quickly, you mentioned Charles Percy. Uh, remember, for, for, again, uh, folks that are a lot younger than me, Charles Percy was a Republican who actually supported me when I ran for alderman in 1979. Wow. Okay? He supported me. Charles Percy would be, the left of, to be, he'd be to the left of many of our Democratic U.S. senators today. Yeah. Uh, he was a big business person. I had some tragedy in the family. One of his twin daughters was was killed. Um, but anyway, it just shows how the pendulum changes so much that we had these wonderful Republican U.S. senators, at least from my point of view, who yeah. were not at all like uh, many of the ones today. I know. I know. I mean, people talk about if Ronald Reagan were around today, would he be a would he be a Democrat because of some of the stances he took? But Charles Percy um, you know, if you look at what he did and what causes and, and, you know, he supported and what bills he supported, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, he the the parties 
were a lot different back then, weren't they, David? Absolutely, and and, and they continue to evolve. But um, you know, because I I heard you. I don't have time for this, but I heard you discussing with your previous guest about the courts and all that. And uh, uh, if people are all interested, let me just throw out this name. I might have said it to you before, too. A woman named Nancy McLean, a professor, I believe, at Duke. Um, a brilliant woman who wrote this book. And if you're interested in why all these things are happening, why the Supreme Court did what it did on reproductive rights, why they're scheming now to take away regulatory powers um, from um, Congress and other kinds of things in administration. Just Nancy McLean, Democracy in Chains, and it, it studies the powerful Koch brothers and their hundreds of millions of dollars that were put into some very talented people, too, good, talented people, um, brilliant people in some cases, who've been concocting this scheme. How to, how to make sure that even if you have a Democratic president, they can't do anything mm-hmm. to hurt rich and powerful people. Um, and her, her book, hopefully by now she's written another one, but it's, it's just so perfect times because these things keep happening. That you, you know, even when you don't have a majority, which the Republicans haven't had, um, I mean, a legitimate majority, meaning like the most votes someplace, um, they found ways. And even when we were discussing on the issue earlier, one of the difficulties with uh, hopefully your correct, highly high hopes for a possible change in the court is, again, still a filibuster. So yep. the Democrats yep. would have I 52 agree with you. senators. That's got to go. But, David, yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I have to cut our discussion off. We are slightly over our time, but that's OK oh, well, I'm because sorry. it was worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> David Orr, Good Government, Illinois. Uh, find the new podcast with Mayor Lori, former Mayor Lori Lightfoot and follow Good Government, Illinois. They do a lot of cool stuff. Thank you, David, for being here. Thank you, Joan. We're going to take a break and be back with more after this. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 a.m., WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Scott Wagaspak, who is the older person for the 32nd Ward in the city of Chicago. Uh, Scott, how are you doing? Joan, I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Um, I um, was talking to a couple of people that I know who uh, follow city politics, and uh, they had very complimentary things to say about you. And they felt that the current administration was missing out by not involving you uh, more than they do on various uh, committees or just um, seeking your thoughts on things. I thought I would I would pass that along. You have a lot of people who think you are uh, very good at your job. Well, I appreciate that. I I know I got, you know, kind of booted from finance and budget, but uh, it's okay. You know, I'm still plugging away and I try to work with a lot of the new aldermen and uh, my colleagues that I've been serving with just to make sure we're trying to do the right thing and getting the facts as straight as possible and, Mm -hmm. you know, follow the laws that we should. So I appreciate that. You know, Raymond Lopez told me that 
Um, it used to be that Ed Burke had like a binder, and if you were a new alderman, he would share the binder with you about how everything worked and how to do everything. And and is the uh, now that Ed Burke is gone, is there a binder that uh, the new alder people get? Do you put together a binder for them? Yeah, actually, I did while I was still the finance chairman, and a lot of the new people came in, you know, before the first uh, session started for the the new council in this term. I actually uh, had done it before with Ed Burke. Um, you know, we and look, you know, he was basically doing all the things that here's what you need to know about HR. Here's how these different committees work. Here's how you file legislation. And we did all of that. Um, we added a lot more to it. We had uh, lengthy ethics sessions with the uh, ethics director, Steve Berlin, and we did a lot of other things that, you know, we just added to it and made sure that everybody not only had a copy of it, but they could actually speak to all the individuals in a full day session. Um, and we did a couple of them, but um, yeah, they got a book, but they also got a nice uh, memory stick so it would make it easier to carry around. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Ed Burke, I don't know if you heard, I was just talking to uh, David Orr, and I asked him a question that I've been talking to some people about. Ed Burke obviously convicted on several counts, uh, potential uh, multi-decade sentences that he's looking at. He's also 80 years old. And I asked David if he thought that on the basis of his age, uh, he should get a break. And very, I, I was very surprised. David said that basically know um, that he shouldn't get a break. I mean, that this was a guy who had um, abused his power for a very long time. And if you want to send a message that this isn't the way you want your politicians to behave, then that message has to be sent with what kind of sentence somebody like Ed Burke gets. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's, you know, it's really up to the judge on sentencing, and we're going to have to wait a few more months to see what happens there. But I think these judges are taking these issues very seriously for abuse of the law, um, you know, far beyond these ethical questions that um, we had been raising for many years with Ed Burke, um, you know, in the council. And it was very difficult challenging him in the council when you really didn't have a lot of friends there that would stand with you and take on, you know, the most powerful man in 50 years. But I think, um, you know, David's kind of right there, but it's really going to be up to the judge to say, look, here's here's uh, the full length that we could give you or the max we could give you. You know, you got to remember, though, that with a lot of these guys, they're, they're going to uh, sort of a minimum security uh, prison, typically up in Wisconsin, um, although, you know, Blagojevich ended up in Colorado and um, spent many years there. So we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, CBS 2's legal analyst Irv Miller is predicting that the sentence will be 8 to 12 years in prison. And I don't know if he has any special insight, but I do know that he was the legal advisor to the CBS show The Good Wife. And I liked that show. So maybe uh, Irv... (laughs) <laughs> maybe Irv knows Call what back he's in in June. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. Um, I wanted to, as long as we are talking about the city council, what do you think about the budget? What's good? What's bad? You know, there, this was a fairly uh, easy budget to put together. I think we had lined up a lot of, of the 
Um, you know, we closed a lot of the budget gap. Uh, obviously, it, it widened up a little bit with the migrant issue. Um, you probably heard recently with the $95 million that the mayor wanted to spend. Some of us have some pretty serious issues with that, you know, and that's, um, you, you know, the U.S. Treasury, when you're talking about spending ARPA funds or CARES, you know, CARES Act funds, it was the U.S. Treasury that designated or said, here's what you could spend it on. And now, you know, as the is the administration doing that? I don't quite know because I haven't seen, you know, like in, in years past during the COVID crisis, we were in constant touch with the U.S. Treasury through the budget office to make sure that it's being spent correctly. Um, you know, those kind of issues are really something that's coming to the forefront. You know, how are we spending it? Or do you have the authority to do it? You know, we might have we might have had a little bit of a surplus there. We might have closed the budget gap, but um, it's really how you move forward from uh, that budget vote and how you are open and transparent about it. And right now we're not really seeing that. Mm-hmm. Well, I have been complaining. You know, I in a previous life I was a journalist, and I have a special place in my heart for journalists. And I've been reading a few different things about the new administration that really give me pause um, you know, Paris shoots over at uh, TTW, asked uh, via a Freedom of Information Act for some emails that had to do with problems at a migrant shelter. What he got back from the city was so heavily redacted as to be useless. Now, he got those same emails from a community activist group and published them. And after that, then the mayor's office sent him unredacted emails. That's just one example, but I'm reading lots of things. Like, for instance, Shia Kapos in Illinois Playbook wrote, I think it was this week, that, or no, the end of last week on Friday, the mayor was meeting with certain alder people to discuss the migrant situation, but he had them come in uh, in small groups so that the Open Meeting Act did not apply. So he could have these closed-door meetings. So he had one small group and then another small group. Um, that kind of thing makes me very nervous. I'm very concerned about a potential lack of transparency from this administration. And maybe if we'd elected a Republican mayor, um, I wouldn't, you know, at least they would be being who they are. But when you... Have somebody who's a progressive. And now we saw this with Lori Lightfoot, too. You know, remember, bring in the light was going to be the situation. And then it um, it didn't turn out that way. And I'm worried I see the same thing with this administration. Do you see what I see? Are you concerned? Yeah, I've had some pretty uh, I've raised some pretty serious ethical questions over the last few months. You know, when we saw the Garter World contract, if you really want to go back to you know, the beginning of the sort of the migrant situation when the Garda World contract came up, um, you know, people were asking questions about that, saying, well, I think we should really have a discussion if we're going to give tens of millions of dollars to this company that has pretty serious, pretty serious ethics and legal violations with the U.S. government, you know, overseas or in Florida. And they said, well, we're looking at that contract. And they had literally already signed the contract. So they, they flat out just lied to uh, in this case, the budget committee and all the aldermen saying that, you know, they were looking at it, but they hadn't, they had already signed the contract. So it was coming back on what well, guys, why would you, why would you do something like that? So that mm-hmm. really set people off on, on a bad foot there. But, 
you know, I look at um, what they did with Paris on that issue. A five-year-old child died, and no one's taken responsibility or accountability for it and saying, look, this is a serious problem, but um, this happened under our watch. We should really reflect on it and try to find a way to be more open about what's happening in these shelters. Just, just as Paris was trying to do, just as you know, the, the media was trying to look at that. And you know, we we had uh, a few weeks ago. I I happened to be looking at the do not hire list and trying to figure out a way to pair up what happens at CPS or CHA or CTA and say if you have people who are fired there or at the city for fraud, there should be reciprocity, mm-hmm. and people shouldn't be able to come back and work without anybody knowing that they had committed some kind of fraud or criminal act um, and they were fired for that. Now, lo and behold, you know, I find out by almost by, um, you know, just digging around on some other issue that the mayor's office had fired several women and a male for, um, and I think, as former IG said, Joe Ferguson, a retaliatory way, um, abusing the do not hire list. So, you know, you look at these things, you look at the the ethics violation list that came out last week through Steve Berlin and the Board of Ethics. Um, it is the highest number of ethics violations or people who haven't done their statement of economic interest or ethics uh, report in the city since the clout list back in 2006. Uh, so it's just wave after wave, week after week of ethics violations that are really adding up and making people wonder What's really going on here? And, you know, going back to that contract that um, you raised some issues about, if you, I don't understand the, the need to lie. Own it. You know what? I understand you have concerns, but I felt we needed to make a decision right away. We need to move on this problem. I'm the mayor. I own this, and I understand your concerns, but I felt I had to act, and I acted. So there. You know, just own it. What's the deal right. about about the lies? That's the lies and the hiding. You know, it's the city of Chicago. Why haven't politicians learned that the cover-up is worse than the crime? I don't know. I think I, I keep wondering that, too, that, you know, especially at that level, uh, the Chicago media corps is, is pretty good at what they do. Um, they know what the practices are. They know how government works. You know, obviously, you get some new young journalists in there that um, we often talk to and say, well, actually, you know, here's how things work. Um, we'd be happy to talk you through it, you know, about how a the budget works, HR, the police department, whatever it might be. But the media core here knows when they, you know, when they see something or smell something that's not right, they are typically on the right track. Yeah. When I first got to Chicago, I worked briefly at Channel 9, and they asked me one day, they was like, oh, you know, would you like to cut up for City Hall today? And I was like, sure. I'd been in Sacramento, California, where the city council <laughs> meetings, there's they're very quiet. Everybody follows the agenda. Everybody uh, says what they want to say. It's very orderly. I got to Chicago City Council, and there were groups of people all over having discussions, and nobody seemed to be paying any attention to what was going on, you know, in the in the main body. And I looked around, and I was like, I was I so in over my head. I had no clue. So I don't know if you remember a Channel 7 political reporter by the name of Hugh Hill. He had a bright head of red hair. 
and I saw Hugh Hill off in the distance, and I got my camera crew, and I at a at a surreptitious distance I followed Hugh Hill, and whoever Hugh Hill talked to, I talked to, and you know I'd, I'd put a microphone in their face, and I'd say, and they had Hugh had just walked away, and I'd say, yep. I'm here to talk about the same thing. And then they would just start talking. And I didn't even have to ask them a question. And I, I, I was only smart enough to know who was the smart person to follow. So, yeah, it's, it's Chicago City Council is like nothing else in the country. Uh, it is a different beast. Scott, we need to take a real quick break. Uh, more I want to talk to you when we come right back after this. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And joining me is Alderman Scott Wagaspak. He represents Chicago's 32nd Ward. Um, Scott, I've I've been reading about. Um, I don't I don't want to overstate this, but it seems like there is some tension between Mayor Brandon Johnson and Governor Pritzker. I mean, we first saw it erupt when Brandon Johnson was going to build that tent. Uh, City, I guess you would call it, on um, some land that was tainted with toxic chemicals. Brandon Johnson's administration said they tested it and they could remediate it. Governor Pritzker, the money was coming from the state to build it, and Governor Pritzker stepped in and said, no, uh, you didn't do the testing right. It's not safe, and we are not going to be doing this. That was the first public rift, but... Even though they are very careful in what they say about one another, it does seem to be that over this migrant situation, tensions are building between the city and the state. Do you see that? I, I do. I first saw it with the uh, Garda World contract, and I think kind of mm-hmm. pushing that through. We saw it with that Brighton Park uh, tent camp or you know, essentially a refugee camp that they were setting up. And a lot of us, again, were saying, look, you know, um, you're trying to take over a park district out on the west side. You're trying to take over a a vacant lot that was a former, you know, toxic waste site. Um, I think there was just a lot of uh, inexperience uh, surrounding the mayor, um, you know, and it's, yeah, it's become a very chilling, I think, relationship. But look, I think the I think the governor is trying to do everything he can to help. I don't think he's been vindictive in any way. Um, I think he's really tried to take the lead where the new administration has dropped the ball or failed or not had the experience necessary to run these issues and crises. So, um, you know, it's it's been full of tension, but I think uh, the governor is trying to do everything he can to keep the city uh, with, have the resources that we need, have the things that we need to kind of keep the city moving in the right direction. On the mayor's side, you know, there's a lot of things that we have to do as a city. We have uh, several issues that the state has to um, really either vote on or kind of take forward for us and help us. And so they have to have a good relationship. You know, you can't um, you can't constantly criticize the governor. And, you you know, I had colleagues, uh, for instance, the floor leader and the zoning chair, Alderman Ramirez Rosa, who was openly on the council floor slamming uh, the governor. And it was kind of early on in the administration. And we were saying, what are you doing? 
why why would you do this to the governor? You know, we need the governor. We say? need to work together. Oh, it was about the uh, Garter World contract. It was about the migrants that the governor wasn't doing enough. He um, he was, you know, kind of basically misleading people. So um, I think some of us were, frankly, a little stunned that that was coming from somebody who was in a leadership position with the Johnson administration. Um, you know, so you can't really start out that way. I think you have to really come in and, and work closely with the governor, work closely with the city state elected officials and say, what is it that we can work on together? And, and especially when you're in a moment of crisis. Yeah. I don't think we, you and I have talked and uh, since I believe it was uh, Alderwoman Jeanette Taylor went on with Ben Jarofsky and said, you know what? We weren't ready. You know, we progressives, we were just right. like, give us the reins of power and everything will be better. Everything will be different. And uh, we have found that we are not as ready to take on leadership as we thought we were. A good grief. Did she get smacked down by her fellow progressives for that? No, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think there was much discussion after that. I think a lot of us that have watched and said, here's how basic government functions should work, and here's what you're supposed to focus on. Um, you know, the the things that we do as an alderman, the things that you have to do as a mayor, um, they are, you know, you really have to be hands-on all the time. And to go off on tangents to talk about issues that the city council cannot affect, you know, and I think this is where she was getting upset that even on the basic stuff, they dropped the ball mm-hmm. and it just honest, you know, it, a lot of aldermen feel that way that um, we have just watched them uh, in, in, in Jeanette's own words, we weren't ready for the fifth floor. We're not ready for leadership in the, in the city. And that's unfortunate, but people don't have time to wait for people to learn. It has to be when you walk in, you have to know how to do the job. One last thing, and we only have about a minute left. Um, there was recently a resolution about Gaza that was presented to the mm-hmm. city council. You know, you guys can have all the feelings you want. You can talk about things in interviews. But when I see something that the city council has absolutely nothing to do with um, come to the floor, it strikes me sort of like it's kind of a waste of time. Um, how do you feel about that kind of thing? Is it important? Well, that that particular issue aside, you know, I think a lot of us um, want to see peace in the Middle East. We want to see peace, um, you know, across the board. There's no doubt about that. Everybody in the city wants to live in a way that, you know, they can feel safe when they walk out the door, that public safety is a prime issue. And I think the amount of effort and time that's been put into that particular issue and, and frankly many others that's I think where Jeanette Taylor was kind of getting back to like we're they're so focused on other issues that are not relative to somebody being safe walking to school or work that it it becomes um, to a lot of people who call us and say why why are you focused on these issues you should be focused on what my child's needs are what my yeah, senior exactly. citizens needs are who yeah who are trying to struggle and survive. And yeah, so that I I wouldn't say it's a distraction. Some of these issues could be resolved very quickly, but if you have extreme policies in play, 
you're not going to get there. And yeah. so those are what we've Scott, said. Scott, I, is, look, I don't you mean got to interrupt. I, I shouldn't have That's asked okay. a, a question like that when I knew we were really running out of time because uh, Patty Vasquez is sitting in the studio wondering why I'm still uh. talking. <laughs> <laughs> We'll miss her, too. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And, Patty, thank you for not getting on your microphone and yelling at us. I appreciate that. I will see you guys tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Have a great evening. Good night.